What's the matter? What happens tomorrow? Because we men ain't. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. Abraham Galloway has been compared to Malcolm X and James Bond. Galloway was an African-American who escaped enslavement, became a Union spy during the Civil War, and recruited black soldiers to fight with the North. Born 185 years ago today, Galloway has largely been left out of the history books. NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked to some people trying to change that. Abraham Galloway was a man with swagger and style and a pistol in his belt. He was a very attractive, very charismatic, you know, fly type of individual. And he comes strapped all the time. That's actor Mike Wiley and playwright Howard Kraft. They developed a one-man show about Galloway. We refuse to be a slave to the southern white man. And we refuse to be only three-fifths free to the northern white man. The Fire of Freedom is based on a book of the same name by historian David Soselsky. Soselsky says when he was doing research for another book about maritime slavery, he kept coming across the name Abraham Galloway. And the stories were sort of so different than what I had been taught about slavery or the Civil War or the role of African-Americans in the Civil War. Galloway was born in a North Carolina fishing village on the Cape Fear River. Both he and his mother were enslaved. When he was 20, he escaped to Philadelphia and then Canada. He traveled to Haiti to join revolutionaries planning an attack on the American South. It never materialized. Soselsky says by the time Galloway was back in the U.S., his reputation as a cunning, determined abolitionist was known to Union soldiers in the North. They were looking for African Americans they could recruit as spies. They realize that they're about to send a lot of their young men into the South and that they don't have the kind of intelligence gathering capacity that they want and need. Galloway became one of the Union's most trusted spies. I wage missions from the Chesapeake Bay down to the Mississippi River. When the Union planned to invade the North Carolina coast, Galloway was the perfect insider to scout landings for ships. Or else their ships would end up capsized or stuck on sandbars. So I reached out to the watermen and the boatmen of my youth, and word quickly spread. Galloway may have worked for the Union Army, but he didn't trust it. He was attached to a Union regiment in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Union soldiers were trying to dig a strategic canal. When they began to get sick and die from disease and exhaustion, they enlisted African Americans from nearby plantations. Soselsky says they promised them protection in exchange for their labor. Then the Union abandoned them. Our people who were promised freedom, who watched friends and families die from toil and disease of digging that ditch, 
the Union left them, left them to the cruelty of the Confederate soldiers, left them to die. Still, Galloway helped recruit thousands of black soldiers in and around New Bern, North Carolina. He was fearless, says Soselsky. He doesn't fit in the normal narrative of, this, of slavery or the Civil War, this swashbuckling figure that wouldn't take sass from Northern or Southern or Black or White, Union or Confederate. And he didn't hesitate to use violence. A slave will not be free without much killing. There is no story in history or in scripture where an enslaved people talk their way out of bondage. You're talking about a guy who was definitely from the uh, Malcolm X School of Self-Defense. Playwright Howard Kraft believes Galloway has been left out of the history books because the narrative has been mostly written and controlled by white people. You know, most folks don't know that 10 percent of the Union Army was African-American, that, you know, 40,000 African-American soldiers died in the Civil War, that uh, 100 and almost 80,000 served. People don't know that history because you never see that. Kraft grew up in North Carolina. He says ever since he learned about this radical Union spy from his home state, he's been a fan. Heroes like that give, give you strength, especially uh, in a moment where everything is being challenged, where just regular history is being called critical race theory so they don't have to teach basic American history. You know, I draw a great will of, of, of strength because nothing we're facing is, is, you know, analogous to what our ancestors have gone through, what Galloway went through. And Galloway didn't stop once the Civil War ended. In 1868, he became one of the first African-Americans elected to the North Carolina State Senate. Two years later, he died unexpectedly of an illness at age 33. One obituary called Galloway bold, brave, defiant, and patriotic. Some 6,000 people gathered in downtown Wilmington for his funeral. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Did you say... You saw someone steal a police horse this week? I'll send you the video, Gus. I sent it to the firefighter. All-time classic. All-time. It, it, it might have stopped when they pulled Reggie Barry out the car and Reggie Barry out the car. I mean, this was a... I'm going to send it to you. The brothers had his black power fist, and they're like, where did you get the police? They stole him! Oh, come on, I'm wounded. I stole from the police. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. Uh, Gus, I just want to report that that, that stealing the cowboy, uh, stealing the horse uh, was a false report. The guy who was uh, videotaped, he actually owned that horse. And he was falsely accused of stealing a police horse and basically got his car spray, uh, paint, uh, spray painted to return the horse. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that was a false report. I can't do it. We're going to start today with a focus on the ongoing fight against the spread of misinformation, a fight with real consequences for the health of Americans as the country passes 900,000 deaths from COVID-19. One of the latest flashpoints has been the controversy surrounding Joe Rogan and his wildly popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, distributed by Spotify. The company has come under intense pressure to crack down on the spread of false information about COVID-19 on its platform, specifically on certain episodes of Rogan's podcast, where he and his guests have repeated numerous falsehoods about the virus, vaccines, and treatments. A number of artists and podcasters have added to the pressure, demanding that their content be removed from Spotify. 
In response, the company has said it will add a content advisory to any podcast that includes a discussion about COVID-19. Spotify has also been removing dozens of episodes of Rogan's podcast from the platform, more than 100 so far, according to some reports, although it isn't clear whether some are related to racist language. Of course, Rogan's podcast isn't the only one accused of spreading falsehoods, so we wondered whether podcasts should be a part of the larger conversation about fighting misinformation and disinformation online, one that's been focused largely on social media platforms so far, like Facebook. And we'll note here that Facebook's parent company, Meta, pays NPR to license NPR content. Amy Westervelt has been thinking about all this. She is an investigative journalist and the host of Rigged, a podcast that explores the history of disinformation in the U.S. Amy Westervelt, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Over the past five years, we've learned a lot about how easy it is for disinformation to spread on sites like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. What role have podcasts or are podcasts playing in this? I mean, are they as responsible as those sites when it comes to spreading falsehoods? Because people people don't tend to access them in quite the same way. But what, what do you think about that since you've been looking at this? Yeah, I think they absolutely are. Um, I think the only difference is the size of, of the audience, really. You have a smaller, you know, a smaller number of people are are listening to podcasts than consuming, you know, YouTube or, or going on social media, but they are a real breeding ground for disinformation. And I think that's partly because they are regulated in the exact same way that YouTube and social media are, which is to say not at all. <laughs> um, uh, TV and radio, you know, have to abide by FCC guidelines and, and are somewhat overseen by that uh, regulatory body. But podcasts like social media and YouTube are kind of a wild west where content is concerned. And, you know, it, first, and there are a lot of them. I mean, it's estimated that there are more than two million podcasts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody with a microphone can produce content. So there's been a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about regulating social media, with most of the focus being on, you know, Facebook and Twitter. But right. Has that conversation extended to podcasts at all? And is that even possible? It really hasn't. And I, I really think it should. I, I actually feel like podcasts are somewhat unique in that they have this very close cousin in radio, right? So why why would podcasts be regulated any differently than radio, particularly podcasts that purport to be um, informing the public in some fashion. Well, so what What about um, this disclaimer? As we said earlier, Spotify says it's going to add a disclaimer to podcasts that specifically discuss COVID-19. Is there a precedent for this in your, in your research? Does that indicate, is there a precedence for that? And is there any indication that labels like these make a difference? Ugh, I would rather see something that's like, you know, this is an opinion show. These this information has not been vetted, you know, or something like that. Than than limiting it to COVID, because I'll tell you my example of Joe Rogan and, and disinformation has mostly to do with climate change. He's been a, a long time regular repeat offender on climate denial. And was one of the people that started the rumor that, you know, the West Coast fires a couple of years ago were, you know, might have been started by environmentalists trying to prove a point about logging. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, this he's he's really like a repeat offender on this stuff. And if someone were going on TV and regularly 
kind of whipping people into a, a frenzy, I feel like there might be more attention to it. And I'm glad that we're starting to see folks kind of realize the potential for that in in the podcast space. And And I would like to see the industry do something about it. I also think the government could very easily say, you know what, podcasts are going to be under FCC. There's zero reason that's in the public interest that I can think of why that hasn't happened. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess that would mean that podcasters can't curse as much as we like to. But, um, but I really, I just, I feel like there has to be some kind of guardrails. Um, but the obvious question that then people bring up is censorship. They say, yes. well, why do you, yes. why would you, although I will point out that there is a major broadcast network that, that aired a documentary about, um, with a completely false narrative about the January 6th mob attack. I know. I mean, this is the whole problem, right? Whenever you start talking about regulating media of any kind in this country, it immediately becomes a First Amendment and censorship debate. Um, and I think, like, we need to have a conversation about where those lines are and what the First Amendment really does and doesn't cover. I mean, in, so far, the Supreme Court has said it covers lying as long as you believe the lie. So I don't know how, you know, with that in place, mm -hmm. we deal with disinformation, especially if it serves the interests of, you know, people in power, people with money, all of these kinds of things. Is there is there any evidence that the market reaction, the marketplace response to the Joe Rogan experience was other musicians on the other artists, artists and creators on the platform saying, you know what, I will not share this platform with mm. this person, however popular it may be and however popular he may be. Is there any evidence that that marketplace reaction evoked a response? I actually think that the bigger response is individuals canceling their subscriptions. Um, but in the case of Spotify, what I found really interesting was that a couple days after the artists and creators started to do that, you you saw multiple people um, saying, I'm going to cancel my Spotify subscription. And I'm still seeing that today. You know, I was looking on like the sort of boycott Spotify hashtag, and it seems to be mostly customers. And that seems like something that would prompt either Spotify or other platforms to really like think twice about this more so than than fellow content creators, I think. That was Amy Westervelt. She's the host of The Rigged Podcast, which explores the history of disinformation in the U.S. Amy Westervelt, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to pause this for the benefit of all y'all who never saw Soul Food. Soul Food is a movie about a big, humongous black grandmother, aptly named Big Mama. Big Mama demonstrates her love by feeding herself and her offspring enormous amounts of pig lard. Then, get this, Big Mama's arteries are so clogged, they gotta amputate her arm. It was her leg! Right, okay, whatever, leg. Then, she dies of a heart attack. <gasps> or another stroke, or something. God called her home. And what does the family do after she dies? They get together for a Sunday dinner and eat the same food that just killed Big Mom. The same food! They didn't learn a lesson. Nobody went on a diet, and that's the end of the movie. Now call in for your reviews of the first Vegan Friday in the New York City public schools last week. Today you might be celebrating Taco Tuesday, but now Fridays are officially Vegan Fridays in the New York City public schools. 
But are they anything to celebrate? And these are, of course, thanks to our new mayor, Eric Adams, who's an avowed vegan. But maybe he's not 100% vegan. Maybe you saw yesterday's news about a pretty fishy report on his veganism. More on that in a second. But Adams has been promoting a plant-based diet, which he says helped him overcome type 2 diabetes a few years ago. He even wrote a cookbook. Did you know that Eric Adams wrote a cookbook, a 224-page book, on his plant-based diet that came out a couple of years ago? So what was on the menu for the first Vegan Friday last week? Well, according to reports, it depends. The DOE, Department of Education, had vegan tacos and seasoned broccoli on the official menu, but schools reportedly served all sorts of other items, which met let's say, varying degrees of being vegan. So what did your school serve for Vegan Friday? What did your child's school serve for Vegan Friday? If you're a teacher or a staff member, did you go to the lunchroom and taste it? And how vegan was it? 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. And as your calls are coming in on the topic of varying degrees of vegan, it was a restaurant employee, apparently, who revealed to Politico this weekend that our vegan mayor orders the fish when he goes out to that restaurant. He's not a vegan. He's a pescatarian, the whistleblower reporter said. A pescatarian is somebody who eats a lot of fish. After days of silence on Fishgate, Adams finally came clean on the issue at a news conference yesterday where he also did a vegan chili demonstration. Here's 20 seconds. I'm the mayor of the city of New York, and I'm perfectly imperfect. Ignore the noise. Don't worry about what's on Mayor Adams' plate. Put these items on your plate. Because I'm living a healthier lifestyle. And I'm encouraging New Yorkers to have as many plant-based meals as possible. As many plant-based meals as possible. And with just, I think it only takes a little bit of generosity of spirit to say, yes, Eric Adams is a vegan, lives basically a vegan lifestyle, um, but occasionally he falls off the wagon. Um, so a lot of people who probably consider yourselves vegetarians, uh, you know, sometimes you have a piece of something. 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692, particularly with your Vegan Friday reviews or anything you would like to say about uh, what makes somebody vegan enough to call themselves a vegan and write a cookbook about it. 212-433-9692. And here with us to help take your calls is none other than our own Jen Chung, executive editor of Gothamist. Hey, Jen, thanks for joining us on the radio side. Hi, Brian. And your daughter, and listeners, this is one of the reasons why Jen is doing this with us, your daughter gave a pretty scathing review for the first Vegan Friday on Channel 7. <laughs> so you want to relay that to our WNYC audience? Sure. So my 12-year-old attends a sixth grade in Manhattan, and we were pretty excited about the prospect of a Vegan Friday. I mean, I think she was, like, very open to it, and we talk a lot about trying to have a healthier diet. So she knew that Vegan Friday was coming and her beloved mozzarella sticks were going to be not on the menu on Friday. So as soon as she got her Vegan Friday lunch, I asked her, well, what did you get? Can you show me? And she sent me a photograph of a packaged Southwestern black bean and cheese burrito. And then there was also a, 
a banana on her plate. And I, she then inspected the ingredients, and it turned out the cheese was not vegan. It was a milk-based cheese, and that does not make it vegan. So I think she was also a little bit let down because I think she was excited about the prospect of having a vegan Friday lunch. There was another um, a vegan option, but it didn't look as appetizing to her. I think I've seen a number of different pictures on social media of like black beans, tomatoes, and corn being served to students, and it seems like some schools had like a really nice presentation. I mean, think about what the Department of Education has to do. They have to feed like 930,000 kids um, every day and like multiple meals and have different options. So I totally understand that the rollout is um, going to take some time. But, you know, I think we can all get on board with what Mayor Adams is saying about trying to introduce more plant-based, you know, meals into our lives, be healthier and have a more like conscious way of thinking about things. But, um, you know, my daughter was very amused that, you know, what was told to her as being like the first vegan Friday lunch was just vegetarian. LaTanya with a child in the school system, I think. LaTanya, you're on WNYC. Hi there. Hi. Um, just listen to you every day. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I have two kids in this. <laughs> thanks. I have two kids in the same public school in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn. And they, I'm a vegetarian. They both mostly eat vegetarian meals. Um, and both of my kids came home so upset. It was like chickpeas that were runny and green and the taco. And they were like, what was it? The water stained the table. Um, it was pretty awful. And then their school sent a letter letting parents know that most of the kids do not eat much. Um, and they then needed to make sure that they sent their kids to school with lunch. And so I'm all for vegan Fridays. I think it's great, but it has to be appetizing. And then I just worry about the kids who, um, you know, the lower income kids who rely on the school lunch to eat for the day. We have to keep on giving them, you know, an option that they will eat. And veganism does not have to be nasty. Yes. Yes. (laughs) LaTanya, thank you. Thank you so much. And then I just worry about... The kids who, um, you know, the lower income kids who rely on the school lunch to eat for the day. When this school year began, most families sent their children back into classrooms, but not all. Because of lingering COVID concerns, some parents and caregivers enrolled their kids in state or district run virtual academies. For some low-income families, that decision has come with a consequence they weren't expecting. They're now being cut off from a federal program run by the USDA that helped put food on the table. NPR's Corey Turner explains. That program, called Pandemic EBT, has a terrible name, but to the families it's helped? It was a godsend. Joelle Barron is raising two kids on her own, ages 10 and 12, in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And she says when her kids were home last year, learning remotely, Pandemic EBT was crucial. It provided us the stability of actually being able to feed my kids throughout the whole month. The program began when most schools went virtual in 2020, and Congress and the USDA had a problem. How to reach the millions of kids who depend on free or low-cost meals at school. Their solution? Pandemic EBT, which put the value of those missed meals onto a debit card. Families could then use that card to buy groceries themselves. Barron says it was great until the beginning of this school year, when she decided, in spite of her district's safety efforts, it did not make me feel safe enough to allow my child to go back to school 
because they were not able to get vaccinated. Barron's daughter also struggles with asthma. So Barron enrolled her kids in their district's virtual academy. But she didn't know that these all-day virtual schools don't qualify for pandemic EBT. The USDA tells NPR pandemic EBT was meant to help families whose kids miss school meals because of COVID. But many of these virtual academies have never provided meals. Anti-hunger advocates say these kids are missing meals because if it weren't for COVID, they'd be back in brick and mortar schools. This isn't a choice that they're going to virtual academies. They're doing it because they're fair for their safety. Rachel Cooper with the nonprofit think tank Every Texan says USDA's position is forcing parents and caregivers to choose between that sense of safety and making sure their kids can eat. Now the most vulnerable kids living in the most vulnerable homes are having to make those decisions and they're falling into this legal gray zone. Several anti-hunger advocates say USDA is not ill-intentioned here. It's just applying old rules to constantly changing problems. There's no playbook. Lisa Davis is senior VP of Share Our Strengths No Kid Hungry campaign. And people are trying to figure out what different things mean as they go along and sometimes they're making the wrong call. And I think this is an example of the wrong call. Joelle Barron worries policymakers don't know what families like hers are now going through. I guess people who are wealthy and well-off do not understand the look in your child's eyes when they do not have anything to eat. When asked if her kids would be learning remotely without the pandemic, Barron was quick to answer, of course not. School was a joy for them. Corey Turner, NPR News. As your body grows in Oakland, California, where protests are continuing over a proposal by the Oakland Unified School District to close and merge over a dozen schools. Critics say the move would disproportionately affect Black and Latinx students in low-income areas of Oakland. Tonight, the Oakland School Board plans to vote on the closures after nearly 2,000 people logged on to the Oakland Unified School District School Board meeting to give public comment about the closures, including parents, teachers and students. We're joined now by Moses Omalade. He's a community schools manager at Westlake Middle School in Oakland, part of a group of educators on hunger strike protesting the proposed school closures. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I am sure you are weak. This is day eight of the strike. You began on the first day of Black History Month. First, how are you feeling and why are you doing this? Um, well, thank you for having me, Amy. And before I get in, I would like to invite my ancestors, Yoruba people. Um, I'd love to invite the ancestors of the land that I stand on, the Ohlone land, as well as the ancestors of the land you stand on, um, the Lenape land. Um, how am I feeling? I'm feeling I'm feeling charged by my community. I'm feeling um, obviously weak in the body, but the spirit is strong. Um, I'm feeling leveraged um, to push back against systemic racism that's happening in our communities. Um, why we're doing this um, is, is just very straightforward and clear. Systemic racism, racism has run rampant in our communities for far too long. And this is never one of those times um, to have community hubs in our neighborhoods be shut down without um, or attempted to be shut down without community engagement is just not something that we're going to stand for. Um, and that's what's currently happening. The school board is attempting to close predominantly black and brown schools um, without engaging us at all. Um, so we, we, we are deciding to push back. We are deciding to make noise and to crowd file about the reasons in which they're choosing to close our schools, because um, balancing the budget 
especially when it's only 2% of your budget on black and brown bodies, is not something that's acceptable. And Moses Omalade, the, uh, the involvement of the students themselves, I understand there have been uh, uh, walkouts at, at, at uh, some of the middle schools there. Could you talk about the students themselves standing up on, on this issue? Yeah, yeah, we, we have been excited to, to witness students take charge. You know, um, our students were upset. As you can imagine, during a global pandemic, um, to be sorting through mental health issues, to, to, to be struggling already, and then to be told that your school will be taken away from you, to be told that relationships will be severed, to be told that little siblings you expected to go to your school will no longer go, that you don't have an opportunity to go to school you desire to. They were upset. So um, it was very exciting to see them charged up and, and, and um, willing to, to head into the streets to let the district know that they won't sit silently by, um, to take charge and command of their own lives, which is something we've been constantly trying to teach them, and we are teaching young folks that you are allowed to push back um, on things that you feel are not right. Just want to say something. You know this struggle well. You were involved in one in New Brunswick, New Jersey. To me, well, no. Oh, I know. I was talking to Juan. I was just talking to Juan no. Gonzalez in New Brunswick, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Very. It sounds eerily similar, Juan. Yes. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah, that was a, a major school downtown that was being closed by the the big hospital chain, uh, a school that was 94 percent Latino, and and they wanted to expand, so they they just closed down the school with uh, despite hundreds of exactly. parents and, and students protesting. So, and this has been happening. It happened in New York City when under Bloomberg, 25 schools were closed. It happened in Chicago right. under Rahm Emanuel. So it's been a process in all right. these major cities now. Of this, uh, what is the argument that the the Oakland uh, uh, school board says why they have to close these schools? Uh, it's, it's a laughable one, and one that I was really glad to witness. Um, they, they, they proposed it on the, at the board meeting. They were on full display and showed these magic numbers um, and gave reasons um, that, that were antiquated as to why they want to close our schools, which were that our schools are, are under-enrolled, and as we uh, know and they don't speak about, is that a lot of our students are going to the charter schools. Um, that they've allowed to be here, but also gentrification is impacting our communities. But small schools is something that all affluent neighborhoods um, aspire to have. So why do we not desire, why do we not deserve small schools? Um, and the other reason it was to save money for them, which was about $14 million, which only equates about 2% of their budget. Um, there are about many other options they can choose as to how to save this money um, versus using black and brown bodies and taking away community hubs that have been in our communities for over 150 years. Um, at, at the stroke of a pen or at the click of a Zoom button. Moses Omelade, the vote is tonight. I mean, it is astounding that 2,000 people logged into the school board meeting. Um, what exactly is being voted on? Just simply whether the schools will close? Um, they're, they're, they're voting on um, school closure and mergers. Um, and what that means is they, 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 they've, they've chosen that certain schools they would like to merge and put them together. And then the year after that, they'll um, dissolve and become one school. Um, so that will be voted on tonight, and chances are we are very we are very clear that what they're going to do is the divide and conquer tactic, which they've used for a long time, take some schools off that list so those schools will quiet down and allow the others to close. Um, but right now we're not stopping. This movement is no school closures at all and no mergers at all. So Sanche and I will be on this until um, they decide to inject some humanity into the process by which they choose to close schools and engage with our community about these choices.
Uh, and what's your assessment of the political leadership of Oakland in, in the face of this? Are they 100% behind this, or can they be moved uh, to uh, pressure the school board? Um, they, they, can, they can be moved. I mean, I think anyone can be moved. We're, we're, we're humans. At the end of the day, you know, um, it's been laughable, their approach so far. Um, they have not come out to see us. Gavin Newsom hasn't come out to see us, and we've demanded that many times over. Um, we've asked Tony Thurman to come out. Um, we've asked the board to come and speak with us. Um, and the mayor has come out and said, yes, they deserve to close these schools, Mayor Libby Schaaf, and has yet to actually provide proper reasoning. We have no numbers. Anyone looking at these numbers will kind of laugh at it. So leadership um, in Oakland, in the state of California, has have been laughable so far. But we, you know, have open hearts and love and, and desire to meet and sit with them and break bread with them, ideally someday, and talk about the reasons why our communities need to stay um, open. We want to thank you so much That's for being with squads. us, and we'll report tomorrow on what happens in the school board vote tonight, which I believe is 6 o'clock uh, uh, Pacific time, uh, 9 o'clock our time on the East Coast. Moses Omalade is a community schools manager at Westlake Middle School, part of a group of educators on hunger strike protesting the Oakland Unified School District's proposal to close or merge over a dozen schools. This is day eight of the strike. <laughs> could soon be coming to a Middle Tennessee school district after the State Department of Education found what they call a racially hostile environment. Our investigates team continues tonight with Call for Action reporter Carice Jackman. She was the first to tell you about the civil rights complaints against the Franklin County School District and has more on what the state found and what's next for the district. Yeah, Marius, this year-long investigation included conversations with students, administrators, principals, teachers, and other staff members. People on both sides of this argument that I spoke with agree on one thing. More needs to be done within the district to help make race relations better. It's a rebel mascot that spurred petitions, meetings, and discussions about symbols and racism within the Franklin County school system. Now, new documents from the State Department of Education finds the district violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I was just kind of relieved that somebody else is saying it. News 4 Investigates got a copy of the 26-page findings from Shanae Williams, a former Franklin County High School student and advocate who filed the complaint against the district. I was a little relieved. Um, I thought they had forgot about us uh, because it had been, it's been over a year now. The state found several incidents of racial harassment at both Franklin County High and North Middle School, leading to what they call a, quote, racially hostile environment. The state's investigation says at times, black students were repeatedly called the N-word by white students. The investigation also determined the district was notified about these incidents and failed to take reasonable steps to eliminate the issue. Director of Schools Stanley Bean admits more needs to be done. We're going to um, work on creating, you know, a pot more policies or better policies to address the civil rights complaints, and, and it's needed. It's very much needed. The investigation also found no evidence to show the school's rebel mascot, fight song, or symbols created racial hostility at the high school. 
We're very glad to hear that there was uh, not evidence that showed that the mascot or fight song or any of the other symbols uh, were creating a racially hostile environment. I wasn't surprised. We're in Tennessee. They fought tooth and nail to keep Confederate symbols, you know, even in the Capitol. So I wasn't very surprised that they found nothing wrong with Confederate ties to a school. The school system is now working on a response to the state's findings. The way we're going to do that will be talking to other school systems. You know, what do they have in place to investigate Title VI complaints, civil rights complaints, and get more information to develop our own policies? As for Williams, she says the state's investigation shows progress. At this time, we do have a small win. I feel like with the progression that we've made, I feel like we've got to keep it hot. But like, we've got to be represented. Now, the state's documents also say that if neither party submits an appeal within 15 days, the state will contact the district to discuss developing a resolution agreement. Tracy. New for you right now, a high school basketball team from Colchester is under fire after several of their fans allegedly yelled racist remarks to their opponents. Now, this happened on Saturday night as Bacon Academy faced Ledyard in girls basketball. And tonight, some of the students targeted are now speaking out. Channel 3 Eyewitness News reporter Christian Colon is joining us from Colchester with more on what we're learning. Christian. Mark Aaron, yes, students and parents say that fans from the Bacon Academy went to the game and they also called them uh, the N-word during a game. Police got involved. Eventually, some people were escorted out. And tonight, parents say they want the team suspended and to face the consequences. It was a Saturday night girls basketball game, Ledger High School versus Bacon Academy. As time ran out, the commotion reportedly escalated. She was crying and she was trying to tell me something, but I didn't understand her. Nicole Walker, a senior player at Ledger, told her mom that people visiting with Bacon Academy yelled the N-word at her team. What happened to us was a hate crime. And people are saying like that word is just like a bad word. It's not just that. It's literally a word that put black people like like literally like used against us for years and calling us that is the most disrespectful thing you could do. Nicole says her team is still shaken. Her superintendent says several adults with Bacon Academy exhibited unacceptable behaviors. Eventually, one adult was escorted out. In a statement, he adds, we will continue to investigate and those identified will be notified that they are banned from facilities and are not welcome. This word is hateful towards any individual, okay? And there's never a word I and team when they said that to those young ladies going to the locker room, it affected everyone. In a statement, the Colchester superintendent says they are investigating the inappropriate comments and negative behavior, adding the school system has no tolerance for any abusive behavior directed at our students or students from other schools. I've seen the coach do it. I've seen the players do it. 
just say blatant racist things towards us. And I've been playing on the basketball team for four years. And the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference says they have not been contacted by either schools. And this is not the first time that Bacon Academy has been on the spotlight. Their football team last November was suspended because of a Title IX investigation. Now, when it comes to this investigation, police are looking into it. It is an active investigation. We'll bring you any updates on the Channel 3 app. In Colchester, Christian Colon, Channel 3 Eyewitness News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Our other top story here tonight, state police are now investigating an incident at Hubleton Central, one the superintendent calls racist. He's not alone, though. The school is disciplining the students involved. Here's Seven News reporter Keith Bentman. Three students forming a choreographed racial slur with their bodies on the Hubleton High gym floor. It's a slang version of the N-word. Five letters. We've blocked out three here. One of my first thoughts was how stupid, and my second thought was, um, I'm sick of this. The students involved posted to a private chat group Tuesday. Someone in the group thought it wasn't the least bit funny. He showed it to Chisholm's oldest daughter. She showed her parents. They know it wasn't directly aimed at her, but... Um, this incident is just one of many that, you know, my children have experienced regarding the color of their skin. The stage slur made its way to social media and created a firestorm. Commenters say they or their children have been the targets of racial bullying at the school. Chisholm said it's been the same for her daughters, Michaela, a seventh grader, and Maya, an eleventh grader. Racial innuendos, um, you know, inappropriate language, uh, you know, racial jokes, like, not funny. They have been directly called the N-word, um, they've been called stereotypical names. School superintendent Jesse Coburn says five students were involved. He says they've been dealt with according to the school's code of conduct. He said the school has worked on ways to become more inclusive the last several years. This past year, there's been more of a focus on making students of color feel welcome. And have we hit that you know, level of achievement? No. So um, there's obviously more to be done. A coalition of groups plan to participate in a march against racism here in Hilbleton on Saturday. And it's all been sparked by this racist incident at the school. State police say they received an anonymous complaint about the posting. They have been investigating at the school. Keith Benman, 7 News. Classes were called off at Atlanta Spelman College today after that school received its third bomb threat. This was the first time, though, that Spelman stopped students from actually going to class. It comes on the same day the Southern Poverty Law Center held a panel to discuss what it calls abhorrent acts of hate. 
More than a dozen similar threats have been made against other historically black colleges and universities in recent weeks. Michelle Asha Cooper is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Higher Education Programs at the Federal Department of Education. She was on the SPLC panel today, and we spoke earlier. I asked her about the federal perspective on the recent threats. The threats are now ongoing for the last month. The first threat came in on January 3rd, and then we continued to have threats a few more throughout the month of January. And then on the first day of Black History Month, which was February 1st, we saw many colleges uh, received these bomb threats. And now today here, we hear about what happened at Spelman uh, College. And, you know, as we've said before, this interruption to learning is unacceptable. And we think that these are actions that are being done to incite fear and to intimidate. And for our part here at the Department of Education, we do not uh, condone these actions. We actually condemn them. And we will continue to do everything that we can to work with the Department of Homeland Security, the Departments of Justice, and the FBI to make sure that those involved are brought to justice and that the college leaders can continue to do what they desire to do and what they do best, which is educate their students and serve their community. And when you say continue to do everything that you can, what can the U.S. Department of Education do in light of this? Yeah, well, what we're doing is partnering with those agencies that are most adept at dealing with these kinds of security threats. And that is the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. And so we will continue to work closely with them. Um, Back in January, when these instances first came to light, uh, Secretary of Education, Secretary Miguel Cardona and Secretary Mayorkas from the Department of Homeland Security hosted a briefing with HBCU presidents. And during that briefing, they shared information on grant programs, training resources and other tools that are available to HBCUs to strengthen campus safety and security. They also talked about what is going on in terms of the FBI's work to uh, make sure that these investigations are being given the highest priority. Uh, from those discussions and your position, do you have any insight on who um, they believe may be issuing these threats? I actually am not privy to any of that information. Those, uh, those conversations are being had directly with the FBI and leaders of those other federal agencies. You mentioned this is an attempt um, to interfere. How effective are they doing that? Well, you know, Secretary Cardona has spoken to several of the presidents of HBCUs, and I think the message that he came away with and one that we continue to hear even from today's roundtable is that they are demonstrating courage and fortitude in, in light of these circumstances. They have a persevering spirit. They are continuing to move forward with working with their students and ensuring their safety and making sure that they receive the education uh, that they came to their places, you know, their institutions to receive. And they are not scared. They are doing everything that they can. They certainly have the students' uh, safety and well-being as their utmost priorities, but they are not being intimidated by these threats. They're, they're going to continue to do the work that they set out to do. By chance, did you attend an HBCU? I did not. My father okay. did. My father went to South Carolina State University, and it has certainly continued to play a very important role in our family's life, even into my generation and now into generations beyond me. Like we, we care very deeply about that institution and other HBCUs, because when my father went to that school, it was the only place he could go to college. And so that is a very meaningful and important part of the history of HBCUs and their legacy for serving Black Americans. 
What advice would you give to a, a student at an HBCU who's affected by these threats? Students go to college to learn. They go to college to earn degrees and to get training and get experiences that prepare them for the real world. And that is exactly what they are still getting from these HBCU campuses. You know, these institutions uh, have had to deal with these types of threats and intimidation before. This is a part of the legacy, unfortunately, for many HBCUs and Black America in particular. It is an an unfortunate part of America's history. And so what I would say to these students is you keep doing what you came to that institution to do. That was Michelle Asha Cooper, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Higher Education Programs at the U.S. Department of Education. Early reports from the FBI suggest six minors carried out the bomb threats at HBCUs across the country, including Florida's Bethune-Cookman and Edward Waters Universities. Edward Waters University President A. Zachary Faison Jr. blames rhetoric around critical race theory for the radicalization of these young people. He says attacks like these are just another reason why American history should be taught in all its truth. This is rooted in many respects out of ignorance and ignorance not necessarily in a pejorative sense but in the literal sense uh, that our young people are not being exposed to the history uh, and not being exposed to truth uh, when it comes to these matters of race. Faison says he's hopeful that there won't be a softening of the response to these bomb threats simply because of the perpetrators' ages. Danielle Pryor, WMFE News. Yes, comes easier in Florida. It must be the sunshine. More than a dozen states have placed restrictions on how race and inequality are taught in schools. Florida is one of them, and the state's governor wants to go further. He's proposed a bill that would ban schools and businesses from teaching subjects or conducting training that would cause white people to feel guilt or discomfort on account of their race. NPR's Gray Allen has a story from Miami. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis calls critical race theory crap. I want you to pondy replay drama. Oh, what a load of crap. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis calls critical race theory crap. Although it's an academic theory discussed mostly in college education courses, the Republican governor feels it's trickled down to elementary and secondary public schools. And I think what you see now with the rise of this woke ideology is an attempt to really delegitimize our history. Last year, DeSantis' administration adopted regulations banning schools from teaching critical race theory. Now he wants to strengthen those regulations and broaden them to include not just schools, but also businesses that conduct training to promote diversity and equity. Just understand, when you hear equity used, that is just an ability for people to smuggle in their ideology. The Florida legislature is now considering a bill proposed by the governor that would prohibit educational lessons or training that cause people to feel, quote, discomfort, guilt, or anguish on account of their race. It doesn't name white people, but DeSantis says it will make sure no race is scapegoated in lessons or training influenced by critical race theory. The bill's sponsor in the House, Representative Brian Avila, a Republican, says the measure doesn't suppress discussions of topics like slavery and racial oppression. But others ask, how can teachers be sure a discussion of disturbing historical events like slavery won't make some students uncomfortable? At a House hearing, Avila said he believes teachers know what they should and shouldn't say. The moment that there is any sort of hesitation from an educator as to whether they should say something or not, 
it's always safe and prudent for them to basically err on the side of caution and not say it. That is the very definition of a chilling effect. Democratic Representative Dottie Joseph. Which is a telltale sign of a violation of the First Amendment. This bill is un-American. At a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee last month, Democratic Representative Ramon Alexander told Republicans on the panel he believed it was written for a single purpose, to mobilize the party's conservative voter base. That drew a rebuke from the chair, Republican Representative Aaron Grawl. Representative Alexander, if you can keep your comments to the bill and not direct it to the motivations of the members that are on the committee in either party, please. Yes, Madam Chair, but I think the motivations is the reason why we're having the bill. Republicans say the regulations and proposed law aimed at banning critical race theory don't stop the teaching of historical facts. But Michael Butler, a history professor at Flagler College, says that's already happened. Last month, Butler was set to lead a seminar for public school teachers on the history of the civil rights movement that was abruptly canceled. Osceola County's school district said it needed to review the materials in light of current concerns about critical race theory. Butler is angry. I teach historical truth. I know what critical race theory is. And what I was teaching was absolutely in no way, shape, or form critical race theory. Osceola County School District says it remains committed to teaching, quote, the facts and realities of the history of our country. But in the meantime, Butler says teachers, especially history teachers, are afraid. I've had several teachers reach out to me and ask, how are we supposed to teach African-American history during Black History Month? And I think that's a valid concern. It's a discussion playing out in Florida and across the country. A measure similar to that nearing adoption in Florida has sparked a federal lawsuit in Oklahoma, filed on behalf of students and teachers who say it violates their freedom of speech. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. White supremacy is the sickness. It's official. Two years ago this February, COVID-19 came to Massachusetts. It feels like a lifetime ago and at the same time like yesterday. Then there was only one case confirmed in the state, a UMass student who had traveled to Wuhan, China. Scientists had pinpointed Wuhan as the site where the global spread began, but they still didn't have many answers about how the mysterious virus worked. The virus was spreading even as our former president said it was nothing to worry about. And while fear and the byproduct of that fear, blame, was on the rise across the nation. It didn't take long before Asian Americans were the targets of xenophobic attacks, victims of public rants to take that virus back to China, while Asian schoolchildren were shunned and taunted. Customers stayed away from Asian-owned and operated businesses, which quickly lost significant revenue. In Boston and Quincy, both home to large Asian communities, those businesses estimated a 50 to 70 percent drop in customers. During what was also the start of the Lunar New Year, an annual celebration that typically attracts extra tourists for the dining and feasting. Proprietors felt helpless to combat the racist rhetoric and misinformation. Michelle Wu, then a Boston city councilor, pushed back, saying, We know there's no more likelihood of someone coming into contact with coronavirus in Chinatown than any other community in the state. Wu worked with Nina Liang of the Quincy City Council to help organize a dim sum brunch in Boston's Chinatown. Liang, the first and just elected Chinese-American president of the Quincy Council, told reporters, being racist is not the way. The 400 guests crowded into the venerable China Pearl restaurant for the event were early supporters of a burgeoning vocal movement against Asian hate. 
In the two years since the first COVID February, I've watched the response to the virus become racialized with both targeted as well as indiscriminate assaults on Asian Americans. In March of last year, the murders at two Atlanta spas left several Asians dead. A month later, a brutal attack on Yao Pan Ma in New York's East Harlem got national attention. The 62-year-old suffered extensive injuries after being bashed in the head from behind. He remained hospitalized until he died last year on December 31st. Police marked his death a homicide. Given both the country's ongoing struggle with racial tension and the charged context of everything having to do with COVID, I was not surprised when Michelle Wu, a Taiwanese immigrant and now the first Asian mayor of Boston, ticked off bigoted comments aimed at her, like the one stating that communist Wu needs to go back to China, or one complaining about another Oriental in a government position. Yao Pan Ma was attacked in April 2021, the same month that Congress, by a vote of 94 to 1, approved legislation to protect Asian American and Pacific Islanders against hate crimes. Pan Ma's attacker goes to court this week. 900,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus pandemic, but the most virulent mutation is still racism. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. About as funny as a lynching. Oh, hush, boy, you ain't even see it. I've never seen a lynching either, but I know they're not funny. See, shows what you know. I've seen funny lynchings. No, you haven't. I have so. Roscoe Patterson's lynching was funny. Yeah, so them niggas was like, Roscoe, you better leave time for Mr. Charlie and them crackers gonna fall for you. I'm like, man, fuck these crackers, man. It's Roscoe Patterson. Nigga, I don't give a fuck. I just don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? White man can eat a dick. Eat my balls, nigga. There he is. Get that nigga. Oh. Hey, hey, I got Come on, let's there go. Watch oh, out. Watch out. It uh, wasn't really funny after that. Mm-mm. They're some of the most troubling records we have of America's history of racist violence. 19th and early 20th century black and white photos of the lynchings of African Americans. For her new documentary, filmmaker Christine Turner examined hundreds of these pictures, focused particularly on the ones that people who attended these lynchings sent as postcards to family and friends. Her documentary short is called Lynching Postcards, Token of a Great Day. Christine Turner, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. Token of a Great Day, why that title? Token of a Great Day um, actually comes from a handwritten message um, on the back of one of these lynching postcards, and it speaks to the attitude and, and, and the view um, point of many of the participants at these um, public spectacle lynchings. You know, these postcards were mementos. They were souvenirs from these, this event. And so um, for some, they were a token of a great day. You open your film with a shot of one of these postcards. It's an image of a black man hung from a tree. But you've zoomed in so that what we see of him are his dangling feet. And what we're really focused on are the white men standing beneath him, looking right at the camera, several of them smiling. Why did you focus in on them? What did you see in their gaze? Well, you know, I think that for me, the story is so much about the participants of the lynching, more so than of the people who had been victimized. And I wanted to train the audience's eyes on those participants. And what we see in them is a sense of pride. 
I think oftentimes we think that lynchings are these um, spontaneous events, right? That a group of men in the woods, um, you know, decide to suddenly lynch someone. But these were um, planned events, and it wasn't just the KKK, for example. These were ordinary people from all different social classes, men, women, and children who attended the events. Something that surprised me watching your film was, was to learn that at the places where an upcoming lynching had been announced, photographers would strike deals with town officials to get a prime spot at the front of the crowd. These photographs and these postcards became a whole industry. Exactly. And in the film, there's one particular lynching that we focus in on. It's the story of Jesse Washington, who was lynched um, in 1916 in, in Waco, Texas. And his lynching took place at City Hall. And the town photographer, his name was uh, Fred Gildersleeve, um, actually, you know, worked with the local government to find a place to photograph the lynching that would take place. Um, and these photographs that Gildersleeve took were later turned into postcards that were sold in the community. Why did these pictures get turned into postcards? I mean, why were people clamoring for these souvenirs from these events? Really, it was a, a way, I think, to um, sort of relive that experience of of attending the lynching, right? And that sense of power and control, as um, historian uh, Lee Rayford talks about in the film. And it was also a way to disseminate that experience and to share that experience with friends and family. And in one postcard uh, that is featured in the film, in the message on the back, the young man is writing to his parents and he says, this is the barbecue that we had last night. And I think in a way, these messages on the back are, are just as chilling as the images on the front. These postcards were clearly a, a celebration of white supremacy, right? But at some point, they did become a tool for people who decided to do something about lynching, to, to launch anti-lynching campaigns. How, how did these postcards become the tool that these activists used? What anti-lynching activists such as the NAACP did, is they really turned these postcards on their head and they used them as evidence in their fight against lynching. So they laid them out there to really shame the country and the world um, and to make people aware of, of what was happening all over. So in making this film, it was really important to me to um, make a film that wasn't just going to be another story of victimization, but really this is a story of Black resistance. And it, at its core, it's about how these postcards were ultimately um, turned on their head and, and were subverted by these Black activists. It reminded me of the way that images and films have become such an important part of today's fights for racial justice. The global uprising over George Floyd's killing under Derek Chauvin's knee was sparked by a cell phone video. The white men who chased and killed Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, they filmed it themselves. Both of those cases have been called modern-day lynchings caught on tape. Were those parallels on your mind at all as you made your film? Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking a lot about Ahmaud Arbery's murder and, and the way in which it was captured on video by the murderers and then how that video was later um, used um, against them. And I think, for me, I, I was hoping that this film could help sort of lay out this lineage and this, this history um, and, and give us a better understanding of what might be occurring today. Christine Turner, her short film, Lynching Postcards, Token of a Great Day, 
is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Christine Turner, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Gusty. So the setup for this next segment, uh, this is a report from the Chicago Tribune 1985 from black male journalist Clarence Page. His report, Black Anger in Atlanta, James Baldwin looks at things not seen. He's writing specifically uh, about Wayne Williams and the so-called Atlanta child murders. Uh, And this is a review of James Baldwin's book, Evidence of Things Not Seen. I'm just reading a quick paragraph. Mr. Page writes, Lord, the New South, do not come down here looking for it. Baldwin wrote bitterly describing how whites flee the city too busy to hate every evening by way of the bristling system of freeways known as ring around the Congo or by means of the rapid transit system MARTA which translates as moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta. When I say we are, you say legacy. We are. Legacy. We are. Legacy. We are. John Taylor remembers standing on a street corner two decades ago, not far from the West End Marta station, demonstrating for more public transit options, or as he calls it, a good fair ride. Good God, can we please make sure that 20 years from now we're talking about how we have a good fair ride. Thank you. Taylor is with the nonprofit group Black Male Initiative. He was among dozens who rallied recently to mark Transit Equity Day, observed each year on the birthday of civil rights pioneer Rosa Parks. Taylor and many others are calling for upgrades to MARTA inside the perimeter and the expansion of public transportation beyond it. They want residents of Clayton, South DeKalb, Gwinnett, and Cobb to have an efficient way to commute to the city for work. Rita Scott, who chairs MARTA's board of directors, says the agency continues exploring ways to make that happen. Public transit is the key to every community thriving. So that's what we plan to do long term, is to make sure that everyone that needs access to public transit has it. Scott and others are hopeful that newly available federal dollars will help MARTA continue to expand. Atlanta's new city council president, Doug Shipman, says that money can help inside the city, too, including the introduction of a fleet of electric buses. And so I think those infrastructure dollars will allow us to make some of those capital investments that really can change the way the transit works in Atlanta. Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson, meanwhile, is pressing state and federal transportation leaders to rethink plans to expand the 285 I-20 interchange east of Atlanta. He favors extending heavy rail service to the area instead. Emil Moffat, WABE News. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. <laughs> News for Nashville. I said, I called him the N-word. I ain't gonna lie. An elected official in Sumner County admits to calling his next-door neighbors a racial slur on camera. And now his biracial neighbor says he should step down from office. Our chief investigative reporter, Jeremy Finley, obtained this video. And, Jeremy, you got this video even though the city won't release it. Well, that's right. So a source uh, provided it to us. Then we tracked down the alderman's next-door neighbor. She claims she heard the alderman call her and her husband the N-word following a dispute over her dogs. But she says she's astonished the alderman actually admitted it on camera. So I tried to chill and just, you know, gather myself. 
That's Portland Alderman Thomas Diller on body camera video. Police are here because of his ongoing dispute with next door neighbors Kelly Campos and her husband. Campos says she remembers what Diller called them before police arrived. He was like, y'all, the N-words, called us N-words twice. Campos says she was so disturbed, she wondered if she'd heard the alderman correctly. I was like, did he really just say that? She had no idea that he admitted to it on camera. Listen. So I said, I called him the N-word. I ain't gonna lie. I want him to come out in that road. <laughs> the alderman even realizes that he's being recorded. And that might not be good to say with these cameras, but I'm ready to get this over with, man. News 4 Investigates showed Campos the video. What do you think? It still makes me a little upset. He shouldn't be an official person if he's going to start calling people the N-word. Alderman, this is Jeremy Finley again. News 4 Investigates repeatedly called and texted Dillard. He did respond to us by text, writing, I appreciate your interest in this story. Portland is a wonderful place to live. And then directed all of our questions to his attorney, which means he didn't explain why he admitted this. So I said, I called him the N-word, I ain't gonna lie. Because I don't even like other people saying that word. So, not even the people of my skin color, I don't like that word at all. You know, Jeremy, we know the alderman holds this post mm -hmm. until 2024. So right. what is the mayor of Portland saying about this tonight? Well, Tracy, I repeatedly called him for comment. He did not return our calls, nor did Dillard's attorney. Now, we did request the full body camera footage of this incident and the incident report itself. But the city attorney says it's now part of a criminal case and can't be released because the neighbor, Kelly Campos, is charged with a misdemeanor, accused of allowing her dogs to run loose. But Campos says she also called police that day, claiming that Dillard threatened to kill the dogs. Again, those records were not released to us, but we will eventually obtain them, and we will follow back with what they show. Marius. Jeremy, thank you so much. And I'm going to die with my eyes open. The watcher, the watcher, the watcher, the watcher. Hashtag read the blueprint. That's what we're inviting you to do in a Brian Lair show reading project. Read the blueprint. What's this? Well, Mayor Eric Adams has urged the public to not just talk about the most hot button items in his blueprint to end gun violence, but to read the actual blueprint in its entirety. And as it happens, its entirety is only 15 pages of large font print and really just 13 if you take away the cover sheet and the table of contents. And it's clearly sectioned with headings for the different proposals. It's formatted like a press release. So people like me in the media who read a lot of dense stuff every day can find it very organized and clear. So I've read the blueprint and we're taking up the challenge in a bigger way. This time it's on the very short section of the blueprint 
called Using New Technology to Identify Suspects and Those Carrying Guns. It says, just two sentences, it says, NYPD will explore the responsible use of new new technologies and software to identify dangerous individuals and those carrying weapons. This technology will not be the sole means to make arrests, but as another tool as part of larger case-building efforts. That's from the Blueprint. And here's Mayor Adams on this show last Friday on a major part of that. He does not like metal detectors at schools. Interesting that he was sort of what some people might call to the left of Mayor de Blasio on that with the crime and gun shooting, uh, the guns uh, and shooting spike um, last year. De Blasio reinstituted some metal detector programs at high schools that had been taken down. But Eric Adams thinks they're demeaning and create an atmosphere of suspicion rather than encouragement at school. So he said this on last Friday's show. You know, technology must match public safety within the civil uh, liberties uh, that we have. And there is amazing technology out there right now that's not as intrusive, such as uh, the uh, searching people when they walk in school. Some of those are really intimidated devices that you see. They're nondescript technologies that are available that would allow you to determine based on mass and other specifics. So Mayor Adams here on Friday. Interesting. But it's the other part of his technology proposal that's the most controversial, using facial recognition technology to identify people suspected of carrying illegal guns. Here's the mayor on that at a press briefing on January 24th. We will also move forward on using the latest in technology to identify problems, follow up on leads, and collect evidence. From facial recognition technology to new tools that can spot those carrying weapons, we will use every available method to keep our people safe. The mayor last month. Now, an article about this on Politico reminds us that there have been at least six lawsuits against the NYPD's use of facial recognition technology already, pre-Eric Adams, and there have been documented instances of it leading to wrongful arrests, at least in other cities. A number of cities have banned its use altogether. New York has not. The NYPD says it's been effectively and legally used here to solve murders, rapes, and other crimes. So let's have that conversation. Our guest for this is a critic of facial recognition technology who was quoted in the Politico piece and who's been on the show before, Albert Fox Kahn, founder of the group known as STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. His bio page says he is also a practitioner in residence at the NYU Law School Information Law Institute and a fellow at the Yale Law School Information Society Project and that he started STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, with the belief that local surveillance is an unprecedented threat to public safety, equity, and democracy. Albert, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you for having me back, Brian. So in addition to the clip of Adams that we played, the mayor is also quoted saying last month, if you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the police looking for illegal weapon suspects can see who you are without violating the rights of people, unquote. So what's wrong with that, in your opinion, if they're trying to get illegal guns off the street? 
Well, I, I think it's the same theme that we heard from Professor Butler in the last segment. You know, we hear this promise that, you know, technology will give us a kinder, gentler digital stop and frisk. It will give us a magical way to use facial recognition to find people with guns and, and to spare those who are innocent. But the reality is this technology is biased. It's error prone. It's invasive. And when it does work, it can be used to systematically target communities that have long been in the crosshairs of NYPD surveillance, whether it's political protesters, whether it's Muslim New Yorkers, or whether it's Black-led movements such as the facial recognition surveillance of BLM groups. So this is just too powerful to be allowed to be used. The political article cited two cases from Detroit of the wrong people being arrested using the same software the NYPD uses. But the NYPD says it has solved many rapes and murders and other crimes. Convicted rapists. So is that the balance of risks and benefits as we know them? Many rapes and murders solved and just two wrongful arrests? Or would you argue there have been more than that? Well, we can't have oversight by press release because we want to know what the data is. We've actually demanded under New York's public record law to know what is the NYPD's data on whether this tool works, whether it's effective, whether it is biased against black and brown New Yorkers. And they have said under oath and quoting verbatim, the department does not have records relating to the accuracy and bias of the department's facial recognition. So they're saying under oath in court, they don't know if this works. They don't know if it's biased. They don't know if it's replicating the exact same abuses of stop and frisk, which is what many of the researchers believe. And they're just going out there and pointing to uh, these wild claims and then never actually providing the data to back back it up. Interesting. And on bias, one of the limitations of the technology that's been reported is that it tends to be worse at recognizing one individual from another if they're very old, very young, or have darker as opposed to lighter skin. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy as the future looked black. So in a racial justice context specifically, the technology is racist and reinforces human biases that already exist in people towards seeing darker-skinned folks as criminally suspect. But how much has this been documented, and, and uh, can the technology not be improved in that respect? Well, there's been amazing work. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Joy Bulamwani, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, uh, has done a great amount of work uh, in documenting the systematic bias against black women with this technology. But let's say we got this technology to work, even if it was completely technically unbiased, it's still being used by a biased and racist police force. And we know that if you have a facial recognition match for a white individual, it will be treated with much less, uh, much more skepticism than if it's a black suspect. We see people constantly getting this extra layer of discretion, extra layer of deference, extra, uh, um, you know, privilege every time they interact with law enforcement if they are white. And that will continue to happen with, you know, police technology like facial recognition. So uh, and I think um, the work of Ruha Benjamin, the Princeton professor, has been really uh, exemplary in showing how even a technically neutral system replicates the bias of the community in which it's used. Albert, it looks to me like policy is all over the place. 
on facial recognition, depending on where you are. The article says, uh, the article on Politico says London is rolling out a very broad facial recognition surveillance program to catch criminals, which the article compares to China's surveillance state, which we did a whole really scary segment on last week in conjunction with the beginning of the Olympics uh, or the other day. On the other end, cities including San Francisco and Seattle have banned its use for law enforcement altogether. I guess New York is somewhere in the middle with certain limits on its use, but it can be used. So can you give us an overview of the landscape of how it is being used today? Of course. And I, I think that China is often held up as being this sort of worst case scenario of how the surveillance state can grow. But the truth is that when you look at the number of cameras in New York, when you look at the systems that are being used, New York looks a lot closer to Beijing than to a lot of you know uh, cities around Europe with actual privacy protection. So here in New York, Amnesty but, but, but not to overstate, un unless you think it's not overstating. New York is not using it in the same oppressive ways as China is, or would you argue that it is? No, I, I think clearly the use of facial recognition by the Chinese government to target the Uyghur community as part of that genocide is a unique crime against humanity. But what we see is this technical capability that is truly staggering here in New York. And we do see it used in ways that truly you know, threaten democracies, such as the way it has been used to target Black Lives Matter protesters, the way it was used to target Derek Ingram uh, in a very prominent case back in 2020, where a SWAT team was sent to his door after he led a uh, BLM protest because of facial recognition. But here in the city, you know, thanks to the work of Amnesty International, we know that the NYPD has more than 10,000 cameras in public places uh, and that have been installed to track uh, New Yorkers. And all of those feed into the city's real-time crime center. But on top of that, we have tens of thousands of private cameras, which are uh, linked into the city through our domain awareness system. And so that has given the city this massive pool of video uh, images to scour with facial recognition. You know, currently, uh, the most recent year we have uh, data for it was more than 10,000 searches per year. And this can be used for anything. It can be used for graffiti. It can be used for shoplifting. It can be used for the most, you know, minor of crimes. And, and we see this, you know, really troubling pattern where historically they have they haven't just taken an image as they see it on CCTV and run through facial recognition. They'll Photoshop them. They'll take that image, and if the eyes are closed, they'll Photoshop them open. If the mouth is open, they'll Photoshop it closed. We'll even see entire sections of a face cop copied from you know, uh, Google Images into uh, an incomplete fit photo to create a composite. And this is, this is an art project. This isn't science. And we have absolutely no data from any of the independent researchers on whether any of this is remotely accurate few more minutes digging into this part of Mayor Adams' blueprint to end gun violence, the technology to identify suspects and those carrying guns portion. 
focusing on the controversial use uh, that's already going on in New York of facial recognition technology with a critic. This is a point of view segment. We're hearing uh, a critic of facial recognition, Albert Fox Kahn, founder of the group known as STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. And let's take a phone call that I think might push back on him a little bit. Kate in Maplewood, you're on WNYC. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I'm, I am a black woman. I'm very excited about um, Mayor um, Adams, Adams being in office and his background as a police officer. I think it gives us the opportunity to end some of uh, to, to really do a good deal of work. Hello. We got you. Go ahead, Kate. We're listening. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think it gives us a great deal of a great opportunity to get some criminals off the streets. And and to Eric Adams, he is not a racist. We tend to when we have these problems, I think we tend to err on the side of protecting ourselves from racism. I think in this case, we could do well to focus on ending some of the criminality that exists, and then we could add into this equation. Um, protections that go after that 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 respond to circumstances where people have been wrongfully identified we have to have all of the tools at our and to use all of the tools if we we can fight racism at the same time but let's not keep benefiting the criminals by by saying we can't even use this technology we give more opportunities for people who keep killing and raping convicted rapists horton fled kidnapped a young couple stabbing the man and repeatedly raping, raping his, his girlfriend. girlfriend killing and raping and stealing um to continue doing what they do i think this is an opportunity to change that kate thank you very much for your call and of course i'm going to get your response albert but let me mm-hmm. let me actually expand on what she said um, because I read part of a Law Journal article today on the topic by Henry Parrott, dean of the Chicago Kent School of Law, who argues against blanket bans of the technology and says, kind of like what Kate was saying, you know, from an individual citizen's perspective, this, this law, law school dean was saying, yes, it needs to be effectively regulated, and its limitations in specific instances able to be challenged in court when it's used as evidence, like if it's identifying, uh, like if it's reliable enough in a particular case to be used as identifying evidence. And that, but that that kind of management of the technology is possible and promotes the greatest good rather than banning it outright. So, Kate, the caller, and this law school dean in a journal article is basically saying, let's not throw the whole thing out, but let's also be realistic about its limitations and its racial justice uh, risks and regulate them. And I think if this were a trade-off between safety and privacy, safety and civil rights, it would be a hard conversation. But, you know, when you look at you know, a lot of the claims that are being made by facial recognition vendors about what the technology can do, very few of them actually stand up to scrutiny. And when it comes to this idea that we can actually regulate the technology, let's let's look at the experience with the NYPD. So we've used this technology tens of thousands of times in New York City, but it never gets actually reviewed by the courts. 
the courts don't actually say, was this a proper use of facial recognition or, or was it not? And that's because of the language that you read in the blueprint, that the technology is not the sole means to make an arrest. That is something that the city has used for years to use facial recognition to get a match to what they claim is a match to then, you know, show that to an eyewitness and say, is this the guy? And that verbatim is what happens in some cases. And then to say, oh, we arrested this person because of an eyewitness, not facial recognition. So what we've seen is a system that's, you know, really run rampant without any oversight, without any checks and balances, without any of the scrutiny you would expect in the legal system. And there's no evidence that we actually could set up that sort of magical scenario that gets us a softer, gentler facial recognition program. I just I think that that's something which is often held out there as an alternative in the abstract, but we haven't seen any jurisdiction on, in the country, any p jurisdiction in the world that has actually been able to do that. See, when I raise the question, why would people set up this kind of power equation dynamic on planet Earth? And I said, well, what do they talk about? They talk about genetics. And they talk about certain people having inferior genetics. And they talk about numbers. And they say that the people with color are minorities. And that black people are genetically inferior to the people who classify themselves as white. So I just brought to bear what you go to school for to learn. I said, but my reading and my understanding is that the black, brown, red, and yellow people are what? The majority on the planet. They're nine-tenths of the people on the planet. Large parts of the U.S. are experiencing a significant demographic shift. In 2020, deaths exceeded births in a record number of states. COVID-19 is partly to blame for this, which could have long-standing economic and political consequences. Sarah Lear of member station WKAR in Lansing reports. Lauren Whitmore and her husband planned to start trying to have their first child in early 2020. But that changed when the pandemic upended Whitmore's wedding photography business in Lansing, Michigan. We decided to put everything on pause. We just wanted to make sure we were in a stable place financially. They're expecting a baby in a few weeks. But overall, the pandemic appears to have accelerated a nationwide baby bust. U.S. births were down nearly 8% in December 2020 compared to a year before, following years of declining fertility rates since the mid-2000s. On the other end of the life cycle is the pandemic. More than 300,000 Americans died from the virus in 2020. Even more died last year. Alabama's health officer, Dr. Scott Harris, says more people died than were born in 2020 for the first time in that state's known history. In World War II or during the flu pandemic of 1918 or World War I, we've never had a time where deaths exceeded births. University of New Hampshire professor Kenneth Johnson says Alabama's numbers aren't outliers. His analysis shows more people died than were born in half of all states in 2020, something that has never happened before. 
was pretty surprising that it was as widespread as it was. Kurt Metzger, a demographer in Michigan, says deaths eclipsed births there as well, and he's concerned about the trend. Michigan has lost six congressional seats since 1970, and Metzger says population equals power. Federal dollars and the resources that come really will continue to go south and southwest if we don't figure out how to start to stabilize our population and grow it. Shifting population could force more school districts to merge in certain areas, and the economy could stagnate with fewer working-age adults. Although COVID was largely behind the recent uptick in deaths, this demographic shift has been decades in the making. Naisha Black directs demographic research at the University of Alabama and notes the role of baby boomers. They're more likely to have a higher median age and thus outside of what we would consider the childbearing years. Naturally, you're going to see fewer births and more deaths. There is one reason why the U.S. has historically been able to grow its population, immigration. But restrictions in recent years have affected immigration. Even still, with births down and deaths up, it accounts for most of the population growth in 2020 and 2021, even as that growth was at an all-time low of 0.1%. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Lear in Lansing, Michigan. context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 12, 2022. So I have been told, hope you are matriculating through Black History Month safely, constructively. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. 7300 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate few things to share before we get started one we are listener supported counter racist radio visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism- notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner directly beneath PayPal you'll see the links uh, for cash.app Venmo as well as PayPal all right there Uh, the link for cash app is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows Uh, enormous gratitude to all the folks who have kept the context of white supremacy on the air it'll be 13 years if we make it nine days next monday uh, hopefully more constructive than not over that time uh, again enormous gratitude to all the folks who could have invested their time and energy elsewhere other platforms or other projects or saving it for you know toilet paper investments all that sort of thing Hopefully we have remained worthy of your time and energy. Uh, You can also hit our Amazon wish list. Uh, It is linked at the blog. Uh, It is 
listed at Amazon under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, again, enormous thanks to all the investors who have nabbed an item or three from the wish list. Hopefully the cows has provided accurate, constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works. Uh, let's see few things to share before we get started one uh, i know it has been really tough in terms of the winter for many locations where they've had bad snowstorms and all that out in new england and uh, our young bay area scholar up in new england dealing with all that snow and the cold and people down in north carolina and the great commonwealth of ba and all the rest it was 55 degrees in seattle today the ducks were frisky the park was congested so many people actually couldn't even get a free spot to to stand and appreciate all the sun i went out and sunbathed to put the uh audio segments together just a glorious day it's supposed to be the same thing tomorrow where like tomorrow is the type of day in seattle where you could pick like ooh, do i want to go to the beach I want to watch the Super Bowl. Super Bowl is on on the West Coast, which I've loved. I've been on the West Coast for so long. If you got to watch brain damage for the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl is on out here at 3.30 in the afternoon. So the sun is still out. Beautiful afternoon. So it would be, do I want to go a day where it's almost 60 degrees in the middle of winter? Do I want to go to the beach? Do I want to watch black males get brain damage? Beach? brain damage speaking of brain damage oh never get to play everything they just had a report yesterday they said they are about to investigate whether or not cte brain damage can be legally used in a court of law as a defense in a murder trial i was gobsmacked and I'm with them unfortunately like hey if you already got the evidence which seems pretty you know I think uncontroversial at this point brain damage and having all this impact and impulse control violent behavior you've had all this aggression anyway that's been encouraged for decades depending on how long you've been playing all this it seems you know pretty logical to me I'm not a scientist but they told me to be violent told me to be aggressive shot me up with all these drugs and all the rest of it i got brain damage and now have violent impulses i can't control myself you know bobby bowden nick saban they told me to be violent all these i'm a violent person and i got brain damage so i mean hey i'm I'm in bad shape guilty or not guilty by brain damage like are you serious if that's even in the realm of possibility, then quick, fast, let's get rid of football. Like, hey, everything has got to be flag. If we love it that much, everything is flag football. We do not need brain damage if for reals people got to go. I told you Aaron Hernandez and all that stuff. I forgot the young fella who had even Anthony Brown, Antonio Brown. Excuse me. I said that like, hey, if it's that bad, we think this is causing folks to kill people, maybe. Maybe we will go to the beach tomorrow. Next. Didn't even play that segment, but I did saw it. I see it. I thought it was important. 
Uh, I thought of Dr. We ended with uh, Dr. Welsing's voice, White Genetic Annihilation. Speaking of the Super Bowl, she was with us so many times. Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, the Super Bowl that Seattle lost the second time around when uh, Russell Wilson, they could have repeated Tom Brady. I didn't even watch that soup like not one second. I literally we had cows investors who emailed me to like tease me like I'm some sort of Seattle Seahawks groupie. I didn't even know what they were talking about. Like I had no idea if they won, if they lost. I told I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. This counts too for me sharing like memories over the past 13 years of things that's things that have happened. Uh, I remember this like it was yesterday. The program ended with Dr. Welsing. So this would be 2000. What is that? 2015? The year the Seahawks lost the Super Bowl? Or it's 2014. 2014. Uh, Seahawks lose the Super Bowl. Dr. Welsing was on the program for four hours. The entire duration. That's There's a reason I didn't watch. Not one second. She was on the program for four hours. Uh, the program ends by the time it ends the game is done all that the only thing that I was sure of is that the Seahawks didn't get shut out because they cut a fool and do all their battle simulations so when the Seahawks score a touchdown or I think even a field goal they have like cannons and gunshots and all the rest of it so I was hearing lots of that so I knew they had scored points I just didn't know what the score was uh, because Francis Cress Welsing Dr. Welsing ISIS papers we were doing you know constructive activity I hoped Anywho, but she was with us a number of times uh, on the Super Bowl. I was thinking she would do a program because we've done so many programs on the Super Bowl over the years at the Cows. We had Dr. Rasayan on the program. We had Dr. Welsing on the program many times. Uh, we've had Dr. Uh, Layla Africa on the program. Lots of folks. Um, we've done the Super Bowl commercials uh, sometimes. Lots of ways of trying to get people to reprioritize what, you know, how we should invest our time and energy for the Sabbath. Uh, I was thinking we could do that tomorrow, but then we already have a program for Monday and we should be on the air like I think every day with the exception of like Tuesday and Wednesday for the next like nine days or so. Like we should be here tomorrow, white guests only. So the four or excuse me, not tomorrow. Sorry, the 14th. So that's Monday. We should be here Monday, February 14th. Uh, white woman, Kyla Schuller. I think that's how you say her name. Schuller. Uh, she wrote the book, The Trouble with White Women. Whew, almost like we plan things this way. So Aya Gruber was just on the program this past Monday. We talked about feminism's role in mass incarceration, locking up the Anthony Browders, Gus T. Renegades of the world, a lot of non, even locking up a lot of non-white female and all this aggression to protect and save white women from no count rapists. She was on the program on Monday. This here book, I even brought it up then. I said, man, these, if you listen in chronological order, oh, man, here Aya Gruber first and then bang. Kaya Schuler for Monday, the trouble with white women about how they have betrayed black females and just used feminism to promote white supremacy, racism through the feminist lens. That's basically what the whole book is about. And she even has a black female victim of white supremacy introduce the book and say, hey. This white woman is my friend, which I thought was worthy of vomit, nausea. But it should be Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, Monday the 14th. So apropos, white women do it better, white guests only. Uh, so I have to think, because I'm finishing her book and making sure we're prepped for the program on Monday. Yeah. 
takes a lot of time and energy like do the program tomorrow. I have to think. I have to see how the Sunday goes. Plus, it's supposed to be another gorgeous day here in Seattle, almost 60 degrees and sunny. So lots of competing interests could sit outside and play with the ducks and read her book, The Trouble with White Women. Next. Uh, so I spoke about when Aya Gruber departed this past Monday. Love the book. Lots of constructive info. I talked about the incident at the Seattle Public Library. Uh, I won't go into full detail about it there, but just black misandry. They have a white woman, uh, Elizabeth Grayson, I asked to confirm uh, in charge of a Black History Month exhibit where she exclusively posts black female authors. Some of them transgender. Some of them have a white parent, of course. Gus's second worst book ever, Cased. Isabel Wilkerson, Cal Bell, uh, is one of the books, as is a massive quote from Bell Hooks. Uh, but I questioned this, and oh, we're not changing it. We don't care. Get out of here. You and your blackness, Andrew. Uh So I wrote to the Seattle Public Library Board of Directors, as well as the interim uh, executive director, uh, and posted his email information. I'll give out their phone number uh, if you have, you know, an extra five minutes looking for something constructive to do you can leave a voicemail and they will call you back. You can even request that the interim director or someone from the board of trustees contacts you specifically about this incident. Oh, I will give you the details. It'd be a great chance if you want an opportunity to practice asking questions about white supremacy, racism. Is it best practice to have white women exclusively in charge of a black history month display? And then where they can exclude black males. I'm sure Carter G. Woodson just loves that. But I give out their information. Talked about this back then. Follow up on this as we uh, move forward. Expect That's what I said for Black History Month. Expect nothing but tackiness from individuals classified as white. Whether it's terrorizing HBCUs. <laughs> can't possibly have one of you raping niggers thought of for Black History Month. Sexist, toxic, patriarch. Get out of here. Let's see. B in Toronto contacted me today. They are having a state of emergency out there that is not caused by raping black males, uh, but individuals classified as white out protesting about the COVID-19 restrictions in Canada. It's gotten so bad, she said, that uh, they had called out the police and I saw they were uh, interfering with the police. Some might call that uh, obstruction of justice, I think, is the charge in some regions. And it seemed that enforcement officials were aiding and abetting the protesters. At least those were the charges, allegations. Again, I remember Jermaine Carby. They had protests in Canada, Ontario specifically, about white supremacy racism. And they didn't have all this leniency with folks out in the street at that time. Lest my memory is really bad, but we did programs about that too. I just can't imagine if you had niggers out in the street, me and B got together, like I said, and we're holding up, you know, they got automotive companies. Man, we can't get these parts. What's wrong with y'all up there in Ottawa? These fools out of, if that was me and B, we had lugged the sofa out in the street, propane tanks, going to camp out, we're mad about the rut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. 
Harry, the report at the very beginning, they were talking about uh, Mayor Adams and in New York City, they had Vegan Friday, or I guess they're going to have Vegan Friday moving forward every Friday. Um, awesome. Uh, however, I do think like it needs to be quality. Now, I mean, if it's going to be a struggle, hey, you can always go uh, banana peanut butter sandwich. We did our vegan, or I guess they could go almond butter or cashew butter since you got a lot of people with peanut allergies. There you go. Should not ever be something where we say we're going to have plant-based Friday and then we end up having cheese burritos. Like, what is going on? Or you come out with green chickpeas. Like, I have promoted chickpeas for so long. They're so versatile. You can do so much with chickpeas. They are super inexpensive. So, I mean, there's no excuse to have messed up chickpeas. Like, that should be impossible. You can even, I mean, if you really want to save money, just get them bulk. You can go to Whole Foods and get, like, a pound of dry chickpeas or get a whole, like, 15-pound bag for, like, $6. I mean, I'm sure. And they can, you know, really hook it up wholesale. So, I mean, that's no excuse for that at all. And the same thing, like, fine, we don't, you know, go real fancy. You could do tuna fish, vegan tuna fish made with chickpeas instead of fish. Curry, soups. All kinds of the roasted chickpeas, all kinds of things that you can do. They're so versatile. That's what I talked about for such a long time. How can you mess up chickpeas? Hummus. Falafel. Really easy. Super low tech and you can make lots of it. How do you mess up chickpeas? Turn people off at a young age, too, if you come out with some nonsense. Like, I understand it might be take a little bit with rolling out and getting everything together. But, I mean, really? Chickpeas? Anyway, I also thought it was kind of tacky the way that they start this segment with before we get into Vegan Friday and how children thought about it, blah, blah, blah. That no count scoundrel mayor. Is he really a vegan? Has he been sneaking fish on the side? And they put the metaphor in and he fall off the light. Like, really? Is it that serious? We got to go and inspect, be hopping over somebody. What is he eating? Oh, he, that, he's got red meat. Oh, he's got a piece of cheese. He's got a yep. He's got a piece of cheese. I'm I'm posting it right now. Are you serious? We got the food police like that. <sighs> anyway, uh, incidentally, I had myself when I switched back to being plant based. I don't even know how long it's been. Four or five years ago, whenever the flood started, uh, I said I was going to do that because I loved fish uh, and cheese. Said so, hey. I'm going to do plant-based every day or most days, but if I want to pause, you know, people that I know, they make ribs every once in a while. I might want to get ribs. That's like a once a year thing. I'm going to get my ribs that one time. Or uh, I think it was somebody was going to make jerk chicken. And I said, I wanted to try that. Never had it before. That way I can get it as I'm coasting into veganism. They have all kinds of, you know, plant-based jerk options. If you're in the Caribbean, Uh, I said, I'll try that before. Once I transitioned, I didn't even avail myself. I didn't even take advantage. And some most of it was because there was really nothing that I was missing. Like in terms of like a burger, chicken, ice cream, cheese. There was nothing that I was like, oh, I really, you know, want that I couldn't get. Desserts, pies, cookies, all of that I can make. Phenomenal sushi. I've had that many times over. Pizza, had that today, in fact. Um, so it's, there was nothing really that I was missing where I said, oh, I need to pause and go back to get. So I don't even do that. But I said I was going to do the same thing. And even with that, I don't go around and shame people. And my, like, oh, my God, you had a shrimp. Let's, we're going to beat you right now. 
Mm-hmm. United Independent for sure when it comes to what's on your plate. Let's see. Next, they got to the schools. They were talking about some of the parents who got, I guess, the pandemic EBT. And now they're not getting that because of the virtual situation that their children are in. Uh, And they said that these children and parents were in a legal gray zone. Another one of those metaphors, tacky, always bad when you're not white, not fair. Uh Oh, Uh, that's I mean, that's so tacky and ridiculous. Like so because you didn't have enough forethought in this about these children and or we can't allow children to starve so whatever keep the cards whatever it is like we're not going to have you in some legal gray area where these children are starving in the midst of our already health pandemic are we it sounds like these could be disproportionately nigger children so of course hey whatever throw away indeed uh next uh speaking of throwaway children Bay Area, I already mentioned Bay Area mom, Oakland. Now, I taught in the school system when I lived in California, right? Not that far from here. The school systems in Oakland have been horrible for like ever. They talked about within the segment uh, that it was like 2% of the budget. That's why they're closing some of these schools. You got black educators on a hunger strike in Bay Area. The schools are underfunded specifically in the Bay Area where the black people live. Unless things have changed from the time that I lived there, those schools are funded via property taxes. So they can't say or no one can charge. Oh, man, the white people deliberately just don't fund the black schools. And, you know, they just want us to be dilapidated and not educated. No, it's through property taxes. So it just happens to be that you niggers don't own very much property. So you don't generate very much property taxes. So your schools are pretty lame. Whereas where the white people live, hey, Walnut Creek type areas, hey, we have amazing resources. That sort of thing. So then this has been the case for a long time. Like this, this, this budget shortfall, as they say, this didn't just happen. This has been in the case for decades. So now they oh, got to close the school. Nothing we can do about it. Sorry. Budget is short, you know, cuts got to be made. Always the niggers that end up short with the budget cuts and such. And they said a part of that was the charter schools. That's also been a while. They've been talking about that part of the infrastructure since you've got these demographic shifts. We're not really that motivated to support public schools because we know it's not really going to be a lot of white children. there. We're not producing white babies. So whatever you niggers, a lot of you niggers talk about you didn't want to go to school anyway. So, hey, no big deal. Uh, Let's see. When they talked about the lynching documentary uh, and they said that the photographs, they were turned on their head. Another metaphor. Uh, And they talked about how some of the language on the back of the photographs and these images would be just as chilling. And one of them saying, oh, this is the barbecue that we were at last night. Delectable Negro. Eating the Negro body seems like sometimes consumption of the body and saving the penis and all of that. Anywho, uh, at least in my view, 
I don't think those images were turned on their head. We've talked about that before. Amy Louise Wood with Lynching a Spectacle, White Woman. She was a guest on the program 2016. That's in her book as she talks about the NAACP and others. We use those images to try to point out white supremacy, racism. I point out, which they did not mention in that segment, white people had a really hard time getting other white people to stop sending those images through the United States Postal Service. Unless my memory is incorrect, like they had to like change laws and put in penalties and things like it took a lot of time. And you talk about dedication. Oh, man, it was really hard. So I don't think there was any sense of shame or guilt. If anything, it seemed like white people were really stubbornly addicted to swapping these selfies of them castrated <laughs> Alicebo castrated a Negro lad. Look at me. Got his testicles in my hand right now. I got the jar in the living room. What does it mean to be white? Anywho, uh, let's see. When they got to the segment on MARTA and transportation equity, they said they're doing this in the name of Rosa Parks, legend. Um, the segment that I read from James Baldwin, he wrote that 40 years ago. MARTA was deliberately made. I mean, you want to talk about legacy? The legacy is white supremacy, racism. Moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta. That accurate. That's not what Marta stands for. But I mean, that is commonly the racist joke in the city of Atlanta, or at least it was for many, many years. I'm sure if you go down there, you say it to folks, they'll know what you're talking about. But Marta was deliberately designed by racists to underserve Negros. In fact, even really put that in, I used to live in Atlanta too. To put that in total context, the north chunk of the city, like as you move towards like Buckhead, they have been trying to like secede for years. You put decades on that one too. Even recently talking about this, we're done. <laughs> we want own separate city. We're done with you, Negros. That's the greater context of why it's so difficult. And they. I said that like to go from to do what Gus T did to move from Atlanta to Seattle and see the public transport. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> Gee, what did I say before? All of the other cities are built for and by peasants. When you compare, I mean, oh, my goodness. I, it would be a whole nother program to just do a compare and contrast between public transportation in the city of Seattle, which includes a flipping water taxi and public transportation in the city of Atlanta. And Atlanta has a substantially larger population and a substan I mean, a substantially worse. Uh, it's not even comparable. Anywho, deliberate moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta respects to the late James Bond. That might be, maybe put that one just tab. Evidence of things not seen. Important book. Next. Uh, last thing I'll touch on. 
the segment on facial recognition in New York important for a number of reasons. That's another one of those areas where things that happen in that area tend to have an influence way beyond even the state of New York. In that segment that we've even talked about how they've oh my goodness, the crime, the crime, the crime uh, in New York where hey, crime has been dropping everywhere substantially. But to just keep saying that and gun violence, those type of incidents have been increasing and they said consistently, hey, you got all these people with their guns now. That's what's going to happen. And they even had a report on the Washington Journal this week, C-SPAN, where they said, repeated that, hey, you got gun incidents because you got a lot more people with guns Two, they said in this environment where you've had so much controversy around policing and even labor shortages with the police, even in areas like Seattle, many people for a variety of reasons are saying, I'm not going to call the police. I got it. That also is contributing to a number of these incidents. I'm armed and ready. I don't need 911. So. All of that to say uh, the facial recognition in New York, I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's an extraordinary amount of crime in New York. And I mean, they're saying the same thing in Seattle, like all of the gun incidents and what have you. There have been an increase in gun incidents, but I don't think they have lurking armed looters and marauders on uh, every street corner, even in Seattle, where they said they banned this facial recognition uh, technology. Aya Gruber was just with us and she said, hey, they will come out and do all of this fear, mo- racist fear mongering generally and get all of these draconian policies in place and we're letting criminals off and we got to be tough on crime. Who this is going to come down on when they say facial recognition is going to be black males. That's why I thought we're yeah, black males specifically. That's what she said just a couple days ago. But. Specifically, I thought it was important. They said in the report from WNYC, New York Public Radio, they were talking about the research on some of the problems with bias in this technology. And they said that it doesn't work well for individuals who are dark, older. They said uh, that researchers have looked at how this technology fails black women. That's what they said. And I said, now that's interesting. So does it work well for black males? Really? I would be stunned. Is that what you're saying? Or did they not look at how the technology works with black males? I could be incorrect. I didn't see a link. It was audio. But I mean, does it work well for black males? Really? Is that what you're telling me? And I think that's important because that's who's going to be impacted. They said that within the segment that white people get all sorts of discretion when it comes to was this an identification? Did this match? That's not going to be the case for Anthony Broadwater and I mean particularly this is important because how this is going to be used when we start talking about criminals this is one of those that's gendered this is one of those where oh yeah you want to talk about black male privilege because I already know who are we looking for the first time that they go to a call it's Kate Maplewood Kate Maplewood says immediately I'm a black woman we got to stop doing all of this giving leeway to criminals we got to use the technology at hand to get crime under control. She said, what did Kate and Maplewood say? She said, we are going to allow individuals to go out and keep on killing and raping. 
Now, again, Aya Gruber was just with us. She said, when you talk about that sort of thing, like you mean like there's some buggy monster outside that we need facial recognition? Who did this? That sort of crime has been dropping, 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 dropping. She just said this days ago. I don't think the data has changed that quick. She said, and the same thing that we said while reading Alice Siebold's Lucky, when we're talking about Negro rapists going to jump out and, ooh, we need facial recognition. The person that's going to rape you is probably somebody that you know. You probably don't read, need facial recognition because this is probably not going to be a stranger. Unfortunately, that's generally what we're talking about with rape. Even with child rapes, Aya Gruber just said that on Monday. The whole time I'm saying like, wow, so many layers of do we understand if this is a black female? Because I mean, they could have lied. But I mean, if this is a victim of racism, do we understand white supremacy, racism? And, and even within the oh, my goodness, everything about Kate and Maplewood, Kate and Maplewood said a lot of times. We will be over cons- overly concerned with protecting ourselves from racism. Like, pause right there, Kate and Maplewood. Can you tell me one time, since we're talking about New York City specifically, one time in the context of police and racism, were we overly concerned with countering racism, white supremacy with regards to policy and procedure? Just one time. I would like to know when were hoodlums allowed to allowed to run amok rapists remember Amadou Diallo 41 shots did you all remember what instigated that whole incident NYPD was looking for a serial rapist and they thought Amadou Diallo fit the description facial recognition might have led them to him anyway They tell that's what they told me for 13 years is people like Kate and Maplewood, victims of white supremacy. We are the ones who are most informed about white supremacy racism. I submit, man, the experts are all classified as white. It is super easy to get non-white people, males, females, children, all of us to be convinced. Ida B. Wells said she used to think they were right. They were just lynching niggers because they had raped a white woman. It took her a while to think, whoa, they've been bamboozling us. They bamboozle all of us. Gus T2. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we could refrain from using metaphors that would be appreciated I don't know if they were using barbecue as a metaphor for the lynching or not, because sometimes they would do the picnic and picking. Anyway, uh, if we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. Race soldiers will deliberately use words in a manner to be confusing, cross up non-white people about what's actually happening, happening victims of white supremacy. We are confused. Kate and Maplewood, Gus T. Many times we will use metaphors analogies similes in place of logic to articulate our thoughts often this just adds to confusion if we could work as best we can to 
be precise, exact, specific with our word choice. I will give reminders uh, about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be spectacular. Uh, just make sure everyone has at least one chance to share their thoughts, observations. Uh, if you are in a noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated uh, just to make sure that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, if you know you're in a loud environment, if you can kind of get to a quieter area, uh, make your commentary, then you can mute your line. If you have additional questions, thoughts after your five minutes, just make sure everybody gets there one turn and then you can rejoin to share once again. Uh, if you if we have any of the folks uh, who do delivery driving, uh, to where you've kind of fashioned your code for what to do to keep yourself safe when you're out and about in your vehicle. That would be great. We just had a listener yesterday for neutralizing workplace racism uh, share about uh, doing a delivery and being accosted verbally by a race soldier. Uh, we were just talking about tips for staying safe. Uh, so if you have any folks who are experienced and feel like, hey, I think I got a pretty pretty solid code uh, with regards to staying safe in my vehicle when I'm doing deliveries, especially when you're taking a break, if you need to stop in your car for like, 15 minutes or so uh, to, I don't know, do some texting, talk on the phone, check on your offspring, eat, whatever. Um, just pause for 15 minutes or whatever. Uh, but if you have a code specifically about staying safe uh, when you're out and about and how you take your break or lunch uh, while you're delivering, that would be awesome to know. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Let's see. Folks are spectating other thoughts, or I guess other things. Maybe they are preparing for uh, the Super Bowl. I'm sure there are lots of shindigs and parties, especially if we have folks that are in any of the areas, uh, Los Angeles, state of Ohio. I don't know if they're revving up uh, and getting ready to go for uh, the festivities tomorrow. If you're going to be doing all of that, or even uh, I guess if you're doing any of the partying today, stay safe, uh, stay constructive. Uh, if it's going to be any, uh, what would I say, narcotics, alcohol, or what have you, I would get to one spot and stay. Uh, it is generally a lot of these incidents where things go bad, enforcement officers are involved, or uh, race soldiers with or without a badge later in the evening after it gets dark things after like 10 p.m. Uh, in where you have people who are under the influence maybe you can even add in Black History Month uh, seems racists are uh, aware of that fact for the month of February and sometimes that motivates them to practice a little more racist racism so I would just be aware of that uh, I would make sure if you're going to be at some place where there's festivities today, tomorrow, whole weekend, whatever it is, uh, I wouldn't want to be around a whole, whole lot of folks, like big crowds of folks. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about COVID, the COVID situation per se, but I guess that's something to consider too. But uh, I probably wouldn't want to be around a lot of people uh, if it's going to be alcohol and things because people just get really rowdy 
uh, and reckless. Uh, I've seen too many situations where people, if they're rooting and you never know if they put money on the game, so they're upset about that, don't want to lose a whole lot of nickels that they don't have to spare and that type of thing. So I wouldn't want to be around a lot of people, and I would be very mindful if it looks like there's going to be uh, any alcohol consumption, which there frequently is with these games. You can't just watch. you got to have a brewski or eight. So I'd just be really mindful uh, about all of that and – I guess enjoy, but stay safe. Uh, that would be the big thing. Try not to eat too much uh, unhealthy food. Sometimes these events are not exactly known for having the healthiest uh, snack options. They they sneak a Cheeto or five uh, into the event. So try to uh, eat well uh, if you're going to be at the event. And uh, brain damage. Yeah, if anything, maybe maybe not allowing young black children to watch this maybe that can be a start because they're probably not young enough to grasp like what is cte what is brain damage like what does that mean even you mean like i'm not going to be able to think well (laughs) like as a result of playing this game like i'm not going to be able to do well in school i might be violent this might make me want to go and smack somebody up the head 50 times like wow huh maybe i will go to the beach tomorrow instead of what like yeah maybe that's something that we can add into the attempted counter-racist parenting code of no allowing black children to watch the super bowl or football period something to think about uh let's see uh folks who dialed in with a hand up hopefully folks are not spectating uh for the big event this weekend other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh proceed hello yes ma'am our caller in georgia hey everyone i hope everyone's having the best evening they can have i really can only take five minutes because as you know, I'm working, but the kind of job I have, and I got promoted, woo-woo, so I don't have to talk to people like that. Um, yeah, the lady that called in New York, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I agree with what you said about the brainwashing. Um, I know growing up there, I was afraid of the white lady who called me a dirty effing nigger at the train station, uh, me and my friend when we were going to school. Uh, she could have had a gun under her coat. I don't know her. That was the fear I had. Um, in terms of the public transportation, again, I agree. I live here in central Georgia um, in a city that's full, well, not full, but there's a large population of people who will be classified as black, and the transportation here is horrendous. I don't know. I mean, I'm thankful that, you know, I'm able to drive around and do the things I need to do. And I know in America, people love their cars and everything, but it's just horrendous. So like you said, Atlanta is bad, but when I was in school, I was near central location, so I was able to get around okay if I needed to get around, as opposed to when I lived in um, Dayton, Ohio. I believe the population is similar to where I live now. Um, it was wasn't still wasn't the best, but they definitely have more public transportation and um more throughout both sides of the city. And also, I don't know if you notice, you know, this I guess, you know, over the years, oh the black people are 
stealing from the malls or whatever. And now almost every mall is just falling apart. You know, I remember even living in Ohio, the bus, it used to go directly to the mall, right by the store. You can go and do what you need to do. And before I left, it stopped going. It went by the mall, but you had to walk down these long steps through the hot parking lot if it was summer, through the snowy parking lot if it was winter. It was it was pretty bad. Again, I was fortunate to have a vehicle at the time, so I didn't have to I didn't have to do that. But you know, living in Ohio, I got to know know people, and if I saw people that I knew, I'm like I just I just picked them up because I was you know usually from church. I used to go to church a lot there. So if I saw someone from church walking or whatever, I would try to help them out because I knew them. But yeah, it's they don't. They don't want black people going places, but then when they stop them from going places, their businesses crumble, like the, especially the malls. I don't know if you noticed that in certain areas. Thank you. Back to work. She said back to work. Congratulations on the uh, promotion. Love it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that results in more nickels. So love it. Keep that up. Um with Atlanta, like it's so pitiful with Atlanta and I, this is one, this is not just like Gus's, uh, random rants or what have you. Like this is very well documented. Like this, it went deliberate. We do not want the niggers like she that get into the mall. We don't want them getting around here where we are like, Oh my God, like keep them clustered, you know, down in, Decatur and you know Westlake and some of the others you know keep them sequestered over there in the nigger areas we don't want them out here messing things up out here where we are Buckhead and when she start to move up into the more northern parts of uh, the city where they are trying to succeed uh, and where they said deliberately no we don't want an extended mortal line deliberately to keep the niggers out in fact Atlanta is one of those spots where it doesn't snow very often. It's so far south. I don't it's so far south. I don't think it snowed at all the time that I was there, which is the case generally. But it does snow there sometimes. When it does, we wouldn't it be grand if we had efficient public transportation? But oh well, dang, we're more concerned about white supremacy, racism. So they have reports. One of them, I believe, unless my memory is bad. This is 2013. It was a black female journalist. She wrote about this specifically. And they had pictures of cars just splattered all over the highway. 285, just what they missed all over the highway. What uh, snow hit? We don't get snow here, but like every five years, every 10 years or whatever. So nobody is prepared for snow. And you can't just whoop, pull over and, oh, we're downtown. We can run to five points and hop on that oil. If you live somewhere outside of the city, yee, good luck with that. Cause man, you might have to catch 50 connecting buses and all this other nonsense. And ugh, and all of that was in the report that since we don't have good public transportation, ooh, we all kinds of folks stuck, gotta walk in the snow. What are they in Virginia? Folks are to sleep in their car and all the rest of it. And again, this deliberate, she reminded them of that in the snowstorm. The reason this happened dedication to white supremacy right we don't want 
Marta could have got us all home. We could have parked our car at the station, no less. They would have been secured, walked home safe. Nah. Why this problem should be solved with some urgency. And again, white people not being ignorant like at all. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks are spectating and just, you know, excited for the Super Bowl and what have you. We can all go and, you know, get our triple layer dips together and whatever other goodies that we're going to do up for tomorrow, uh, Peter chips and all the rest of it and get ready for the game. Uh, other folks have commentary. To Greetings share. everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, since the subject, uh, is about transportation, I'll give my, uh, historical background on quote unquote public transportation, uh, was well used by me, uh, in, uh, South Florida. I would say it it uh was not very good uh, uh but I was forced to use it i didn't have i didn't even have a driver's license until i think something like my sophomore or junior year in college. It wasn't a need for a driver's license because I didn't have anything to drive anyway but uh Coming up uh, uh, to go down, go to places like downtown. Uh, that was for you know entertainment with friends and that sort of thing, and and uh, siblings. Uh, also to buy clothing for uh, school, that sort of thing. We probably would go to a movie or, or something like that. It, it's an all it's basically it's an all day situation that would go on. Uh, another means of transportation was uh, asking uh, others for rides. I was pretty good at that. And plus, if you had a couple of dollars in your pocket and offered to help with the gas, the person wouldn't mind giving you a ride. <laughs> uh, just kind of like logic in a sense. Uh, uh, also, uh, my favorite means of getting around was my thumb. Uh and out on a corner and stick out your thumb to uh, get a ride. That was quite popular. Uh, the only time that I ever was in the back seat of a police car, I was thumbing. Uh, never forget it. Uh, it's on the way to off-season training for that ugly sport called football. <laughs> Uh, in high school, and uh, they ordered me in the back of the police car, they meaning a white male law enforcement official and white female law enforcement official. This was something like 1972 or three, one, one, of, the, one of the two years. And basically what they did was question me. Question me of who I was, where you going, that sort of thing, and they let me out, and I went right about my business of getting a ride to uh, to the uh, schools to get the workout. Uh, 
in college, basically the same thing. They didn't have any buses or anything like that. But uh, basically the same thing as far as thumbing. Matter of fact, myself and another classmate that I literally grew up with uh, since elementary school, uh, we were forced to thumb our way to do our student teaching 100 miles a day and never missed a day uh, 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 doing that. Uh, we were so determined to uh, finish up our college, uh, undergrad college uh, 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 requirements. And uh, to be a teacher, that you had to do your student teaching. Uh, once the school found out, they say, what? We better have a bus to get these young people to these uh, appointments. <laughs> that was after the fact. But, I mean, we were used to thumbing anyway back when we were growing up. So, uh, anyway, that's, that's uh, kind of like the uh, brunt of my uh, public transportation experience. Uh, today, uh, in uh, association with the, uh, quote-unquote, Neighborhood Crime Watch, I, I didn't come up with the name. The name was already... Uh, uh, made up before I uh, participated in the group. Uh, we cleaned up in the area, something that uh, must be done. It reminds me of uh, Dr. Welsing uh, stating the urgency of non-white people keeping their areas cleaned. Uh, and uh, so that was... Uh, something that was necessary to do uh, normally about maybe once or twice a month. Uh, also, it's also it's a chance for uh, high schoolers uh, to get the, the necessary credits that they need to have to graduate. Part of it is doing community service. So it was a couple, a couple of uh, teenage teenagers that was uh, also participating in the, uh, in the activity. Last but not least, uh, had a court appearance uh, earlier this week, and uh, it was viral for the well. It, anyway, with me, it was viral. If something, it was if it basically based on a uh, contractor fraud that uh, I was a quote unquote witness victim uh, of this place of residence that I'm allowed to stay in, uh, where a uh, person who uh, was working without a contract, without a license, put it as far, without a license, uh, was really did a poor job of uh, putting uh, hurricane shutters uh, up on my house. And uh, actually, the... Uh, efforts on my part to get some sort of restitution for this it was as far back starting as far back as April of 2019 and finally it went it worked its way through the court system especially with COVID-19 it didn't help out uh, and uh, uh, it came to uh, almost it still has not ended yet uh, but basically they ordered they uh, put him on probation the uh, person on probation and and in turn uh, restitution wise 
uh, he is uh, ordered to uh, pay back the down payment that I uh, made. But what was interesting about it is that uh, they put us in a room, what they call a room, at one point in time during the trial because the, the judge had so many of them. Uh, and uh, I talked with a, a assistant. Uh, I forgot the position that he was. Uh, white male, white male. And uh, they, his job was to try to convince me to negotiate with uh, the person. Uh, and I really didn't want to do it, but uh, I think anybody who has experience in court, what they do, they, they would uh, give you some sort of challenge that would probably be to your best interest is to negotiate with them and the negotiation would, would would be for this person to pay me in installments. That sort of thing. But anyway, he he went on rambling and made up this made up this uh this this uh uh connection with what he was talking about with O. J. Simpson. And the only thing I said was, hmm, that's interesting. He went on, he went on uh, once he heard me say that's interesting in the stating what I know that it probably, he's probably someone that you admire. Uh, somebody. I said, that, had, that is not what was on my mind at all on why I said that was interesting. And I think, I think uh, between myself and this white male racist suspect that uh, he understood of what I was talking about. Uh, anyway, that's... Uh, what I have to report on this week. <laughs> Thank you. Gus T. Renegade, the black O.J. Simpson. My goodness. I said it so many times, man. The six degrees of separation, like everything is a rental James. Like it doesn't take, you know, a whole lot. It's right there. Like, you don't have to deviate too far. Like, it'll be right at your fingertips. Uh, O.J. Simpson. A, a white person aggrieved uh, about O.J. Simpson for some, you know, reason or the other. Uh, anywho. Um, yeah, the hitchhiking. That's wild, too. Like, at, uh, yeah, that's wild. Anywho. Uh, let's see. Other folks who much obliged uh, retired firefighter in Florida uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share uh, line should be open let's see oh missed some of the folks who dialed in on the other line give me one second your line will be with us too other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed hi good evening Gus um, may I be heard yes ma'am um, I, I don't want to uh, derail the conversation. I just uh, tuned into the uh, program. I meant to uh, call in yesterday, but I was very tired from working on my plantation that I, uh, you know, got home and just uh, immediately went to sleep. Um, I did just want to just share some observations in uh, my uh, community. Um, you know, due to the, you know, COVID pandemic, you know, as we all know, there are a lot of uh, labor shortages. And um, one thing I have uh, noticed, you know, there are a lot of uh, stores that are predominantly owned by uh, 
non-white people, um, particularly Asian and, and Hispanic. And I've lived in the community for about 10 or so years. And in all those years I've lived here, I have never seen, um, you know, uh, black people, you know, be employed, you know, in these places of businesses. But um, I've noticed that since the labor shortages, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, uh, since I guess none of the other um, races or, or people uh, don't want to work, you know, I guess that they're now finally, you know, after 10 or 15 years, finally opening, you know, to hiring, you know, uh, you know, black people to work in these positions. And I found it in, inter, interesting because, um, you know, they say that, you know, we're lazy and we're, you know, good for nothing. And, you know, you know, black people, you know, we don't want to work. But, um, you know, with the pandemic and the shortage, you know, it just, I guess, showed them, you know, that they had to, you know, hire us and, I just I just thought that was uh that was an observation that I'd made because I've gone to my to, you know, stores that are, you know, Hispanic you know, Hispanics own them and you know, I, you know, have a seen, you know, a black cashier or, you know, a black worker, you know, on the floor. So I just found that um interesting. I do have a workplace racism story but I don't want to derail, you know, the topics for tonight. So I will save that one, um for uh, next Friday um, and try to tune in. But I just, you know, wanted to, you know, share that observation, you know, that uh, now, you know, I guess they're finally, you know, hiring, you know, black people in places that uh, they typically wouldn't. And uh, that's all I wanted to share. And I'll beat my line. Thank you for listening. Hmm. Yes, ma'am. That's a great observation with the, uh the higher they've been saying that everywhere uh, across the country, really across the world, the labor shortages have forced folks uh, into uh, lowering, broadening their hiring standards. Uh, some folks who normally would be you coons aren't coming in here. Lazy rapists. Now it's well. All right, Jamal, we'll give you a chance. <laughs> wow. Like, uh, woof. COVID has, uh, it has been two years. Wow. Uh, you did still have time. Um, a lot could happen between now and Thursday. Um, you know, never know with white people. If you want to take your remaining time to share about workplace racism, unless you think it's something that'll take a, a whole lot of time. Uh, we're always, uh, always down for workplace racism. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate it. I'll be, you know, very succinct and as uh, brief as possible. Uh, you know, in the workplace, um, I got a, another invitation to another uh, event, you know, and uh, one of the uh, non-black males, you know, who invited me to it again was, you know, you know, I guess the carrot on the stick was, oh, you know, there's going to be lots of wine, you know, lots of alcohol, you know, the vendors pay for everything. And once again, this was a, another, you know, scenario where, you know, I'm going to be the only probably uh, black female, you know, there, you know, with a bunch of men. And, you know, I turned that down or, you know, declined in a, you know, um, codified, you know, manner. But um, all of a sudden, again, I'm getting, you know, the passive aggressiveness, um, you know, the negativity from my supervisor, um, not anything, you know, direct. You know, they always have their ways of doing it. So um, I am considering uh, making a 
move internally um, due to, you know, this This seems that this is going to be a constant uh, issue, you know, and, you know, I also have other obligations outside of, you know, the work like, you know, my, my son, That that's more important than, you know, drinking and, you know, carrying on and all that other stuff. But um, in short, you know, there's another position that has opened up within the company well, I want to apply for the position, but one of the, you know, criteria is that you have to notify your current supervisor to even do a transfer. So I'm just kind of stuck with, okay, you know, you don't have a lot of um, seniority here. And, you know, if I'm not chosen for the position, you know, which I feel it would be highly likely given the overseer <laughs> that I report to, um, you know, that, my time in that department is just going to be um, even worse. So, you know, I am uh, kind of debating that. And uh, final story is, uh, you know, had a white, another white supremacist in my department, you know, uh, had me come in his office and initially started out discussing, you know, work-related things, which is okay. Uh, and then, you know, he's like... Uh, so what kind of girl were you in, you know, high school? Did you get into any kind of trouble? And, you know, I found that question to be, you know, very peculiar, you know, how we went from, you know, a work-based topic to, you know, him trying to find out um, what I did or didn't do, you know, in my younger, you know, when I was in school or, you know, I don't know what the purpose of that was, but that conversation just kind of, uh, you know, it was just just odd to me, and uh, you know, he started discussing, you know, you know, his uh, financial situation and how his parents are, you know, millionaires, and how the money that you have, you can't take it with you, and things of that nature. So I found that uh, very interesting, and uh, those are my uh, reports for the workplace racism. Uh, hopefully, uh, next week I won't be worked so hard on the. Um, plantations where I'll be able to actually, you know, tune in and, you know, listen to you guys. But um, that's, uh, those are my stories and uh, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Real, real quick before you mute uh, and feel free. You're the expert on what happened. Uh, these are your life and times, your experiences. Uh, when this here white fella is telling you about all of his riches, you, you know, you can't take it with you. So tell me what, what type of is that what he said too? I guess so that's two questions. One, is that what he said? Tell me what type of girl were you? Did he say girl? And then two, uh, you were saying you didn't really know what to make of it. Did you feel like this could have been some sort of like pickup type thing? Like, hey, uh, how do you feel about swirling? Or am I off base? Like if I'm being crazy, just feel you free know, to tell Russ, me. Um, not at all, because you know, sometimes we you get the, you know, you're supposed to go with your first intuition. And a lot of times, like you said, being a victim, you're trained to, you're not really to, to second guess yourself to think, oh, you know, that, that it's not what you think. But yes, that is how I kind of took it that he was trying to get a feel on if I was um, uh, promiscuous or more so on the wild side. That's, that's what I think to kind of um, test. That's how I felt. And then, you know, when the money thing came up about, you know, how much, you know, the money that he's making and that how he's, um, you know, retiring soon, it's a much older um, white male. That's whenever I kind of put the um, 
connection together. So I said, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a place I want to work. You know, I've worked with uh, white females, and, you know, they have you know, terrible, you know, the microaggressions. The, you know, they um, they have their ways, but when you work for the white males, it's, you know, they're always trying to indirectly try you or test you. But uh, like you said, they kind of, we're not women or we're not men we're boys or we're girls or gals. So, yes, that's exactly what you just stated is um, how I received it. Trust yourself. Say that all the time. That's a big part of white supremacy racism that kind of get us to where we kind of doubt our instincts and doubt our own brain computer to borrow Dr. Welsing's uh, logic uh, metaphor. But yeah, trust yourself. And I mean, everything about that, that's what that's what it conveyed to me because it was so inappropriate. And just in particular, when you said that this is an older white man, Woody Allen, that's the exact sort of energy, uh, how it made me feel just hearing all of that. Like what? Because it's it's just so like, what are you even talking about? Like, what kind of girl was I? What? What? And then how, how did we even get to this? And then to all of the money I like, that's total like, oh, what a catch I am. Like, if you're looking for a sugar daddy, like, oh, yeah, like, woo-woo. do something strange for some change. Hmm? Does not get any better than tacky. And I mean, yeah, like if this is the work environment where I mean, really, that's one of the same. Like, I don't know if he's one of the people that's doing all this soliciting oh you gotta come out and drink with us and all come out we're going to the bar and all that man like when they talk about work culture drinking with white men who i think are trying to like sexually proposition me on the slide like oh yeah this is not the work culture for me at least not for like 20 years like yes i'd be already thinking about that like how long do i want to be here maybe i can find something better like yeah, and then them being salty about it too, because and that's all connected. Yeah, workplace racism every Friday, but that's all connected in my uh, opinion. Uh, for them to be disgruntled and mad, like won't come out and drink with us, be telling her and she's acting like she's busy and got giving up lame excuses. She's got to take care of her son instead of coming out drinking with us. Like, hmm, that right there like yeah come out we can maybe slip something in her drink or just see how many drinks we can you know get her to consume and then she's not thinking correctly haven't we just been talking about that with the hunting game that right there is the rape scenario right there what I just said it's not Anthony Broadwater OJ Simpson leaping out from the bushes is someone you know maybe when you all have been drinking sobriety would be best championship <laughs> leave my child at home to come drink with some white men or white women uh, much obliged uh, for sharing ma'am stay safe in the work environment like wow that is uh, dangerous really that's what it makes me think like dangerous drinking alcoholic predatory white men older white men at that like wow danger uh Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564943P. 
pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Can I jump in here? Uh, yes, sir. So uh, I heard the uh, segment where they're talking about the facial recognition, and uh, I, I want to comment on that because that's actually an area that uh, I work with in terms of data science and artificial learning and machine intelligence. The issue that you run into with uh, facial recognition is depending on what angle a picture is taken at, you can get totally different results returned. Uh, the math that really powers a lot of artificial intelligence, it's, uh, it's not something agreed upon. It's kind of like what you do to make something work to the extent you can. So, for example, you can have a picture. There's actually one where it's a – if you look at it, I forget what those types of pictures are called um, – I think psychologists do it when they show you an image and one person sees maybe like a, a cat and then somebody else might see a cloud. Well, when you run images like that through like facial recognition, image recognition, sometimes it will say, oh, this is a duck. And then another time it will say it's a cat, right? Now, that's just a simple image like that. When you take into account that – uh they say supposedly they pull from a, a database of pictures. Well, you have to scrutinize multiple things. First and foremost, uh, where did those pictures come from? What quality camera was used? Because a higher resolution picture is going to give you, in theory, um, better data points than a lower quality image. Okay. Also, you deal with what's called edge cases. So that's like at the bottom end, and the extreme top end, what, what will the math do at the extreme tops and the extreme bottoms? So the image recognition side for anything outside of maybe, um, you know, being able to identify that uh, a camera is looking at a face, right? That, that part's cool. So if you, like, take your camera out, uh, camera phone or even a regular with that DSLR camera, when it's able to know that it has a face in the viewfinder, that's cool. That, I think that's the, the best possible use case of it because outside of that, to get to the granular details of um, different pieces of a face to identify if it's a person, that is, yeah, that's that's a that's a that's that's just a bad idea. But given that it's such a big dollar market with artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of money off of it. Uh, one of the issues that I've come to find with it is the fact that it doesn't always identify uh, black faces, of course, but the way in which it goes about identifying it to first find it, but then to take that picture and figure out if it's in a database can be pretty, uh, pretty bad. The other part about it that's dangerous, at least in my opinion, is the fact that it's not only recognizing the picture, it's the fact that what you can do with those pictures, a uh, technique called GAN, G-A-N, Generative Adversarial Networks, what it's able to do, and people have probably seen it when you see those deep fakes, you could take an image and transform it into all types of things. 
So some of the apps that people have where they take your face and then they can make you look like a celebrity, that's part of GAN networks, generative adversarial networks. Now, they have different styles of it, but nonetheless, the whole point is to take this image of a face and then morph it. So what says that they're not taking those images and uh, putting that picture into a GAN to produce the image of a person who they want to target? You get what I'm saying? That they can say, hey, we can make this image look more like this guy over here who we don't know if they did it or not, but, hey, you know, we're just showing the picture and the person looks at it and says, yeah, that kind of looks like him. Okay, let's go get him. So image recognition is very dangerous. I think that uh, they have enough cameras out here. When you look at what happened with the Jesse Smollett case, uh, some might know him as Juicy Smollett from Dave Chappelle's comedy skit about him. You saw how quickly Chicago PD were able to identify these guys, not that much from image recognition, but actually from tracking them on cameras. Uh, a lot of cities nowadays have these networks and networks of cameras. And as the individual who was speaking uh, on that segment stated about the um, cameraing networks that New York City has in terms of the city itself for their quote-unquote crime reduction program or whatever, on top of all the different cameras that consumers have, everything from your doorbell cam, dash cams, et cetera, et cetera. So the ability to track a person not off of image recognition, just off of the fact that we know that an event occurred someplace and this person of interest is around that event, as soon as you move through an environment, they can track you with those cameras because there's only so many directions you could go. You get what I'm saying? So I would definitely, if I'm a regular person, uh, take a, a great level of interest in um, coming to understand this image recognition technology because it's to me it's just going to be used to pretty much subjugate black people, uh, but to then blame it on technology because really – it's not like when a person racially profiles you, they can say, well, it's the math. You get what I'm saying? Like in, in AI, you hack on the math because it's really just mathematics that's being used. Um, that's my part about that. Uh, Gus, my question to you is, uh, do you have like a, a, a yoga book that you've published or, or vegan books that you read or publish? Because it would be very interesting to see if you have like a series about that, because I hear vegan and, and vegetarian, I don't know the difference, but it seems that that's something that you are astute on and it could be something of value for those who are trying to improve their health in terms of dealing with racism, because a lot of what we eat does poison our body and affect us mentally. So have you considered ever publishing something like that to your audience? Much obliged uh, for your commentary and question, sir. Um, lots of legitimate concerns about the facial recognition technology, really all of this new technology just being used for racism, white supremacy. And then, as you said, so that they can, the refinement of it, hey, what are you talking about racism? This is, you know, artificial intelligence. Nobody, nobody, period, white or non-white was involved with this. This is all AI. You mean racism. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the do I have a publication or anything like that no I do not um, I spoke 
about, I think it was right in the midst of all of this with COVID-19, the pandemic <clears throat> beginning, uh, we were doing the yoga retreats and what have you. And I too was, Hey, what you eat is a huge component of white supremacy racism. I think our Bay Area mom has talked about that. And some of the students or many of the students that she works with where they eat all kinds of chemicals and crazy foods and Oreo cookies and all the rest of it and how that impacts their uh, behavior uh, in a detrimental manner. Uh, and saying, hey, I was posting lots of images online and as I was kind of making my change, cooking more and trying to eat better and cooking more, that sort of thing. Uh, showing people that you can, you know, use vegetables, plant-based eating, and it can be delicious that you can do chickpeas that are amazing, not runny and gross that children will love and all kinds of things. So uh, I was talking about that in a counter race from a counter racist perspective, rather, uh, where it can be how this works against racism, white supremacy, uh, both us trying to be health or as healthy as we can be, uh, given, you know, the limitations. Uh, and then as well from a these are ways to prepare food. This is what plant-based means. Um, this is kind of what you're shooting to, to accomplish in terms of when you sit down to eat, uh, what you want to try to eat, foods you want to try to eat, foods you want to try to avoid and why. These are some of the things that I enjoy on a regular basis that are you know easy to prepare, some of them at least anyway. Um, that's kind of the perspective that I talked about it from just to make it kind of easy, accessible, where people don't have to feel uh, overwhelmed, where people are not you know gourmet cooks or haven't been really comfortable doing a lot of cooking before that they can kind of ease into it uh, and enjoy the process, not feel frustrated about it and, and kind of gradually build uh, their kitchen skills and comfort uh, with cooking veggie plant-based cooking. Um, yeah. So yes, thought about it. Um, motivated to do so had been talking to other people about different things. I think I'd even talked to cows listeners about things. I think it's on my Facebook page. I wrote it out last year. Just has been so much disruption with white supremacy, racism and, the pandemic but i posted it last year and people were telling me um things to do like just in terms of of recipes so it's not like a recipe book but just there can ha can be some recipes in it there could be some counter racism perspective in terms of how correct eating relates to counter racism uh pr preparation uh for meals just kind of touching on a little bit of all that even how racism works against us being able to eat correctly and some of the things to counter that so yes i've definitely thought about it and motivated to do it just that is one of the ways white supremacy works just to get the victims distracted and, you know, having to deal with a thousand different things, mistreated and traumatized. So you can't efficiently focus your time and energy. Yeah, it'd be a good thing. Cause, uh, like as much as I can, I, I aim to eat healthy. I'm not out of shape. I've always been, I was an athlete growing up. So I always stay in shape, but I even recognize that, um, you know, the food that we eat is a, a crucial part of you know how i believe they're keeping our brains in these traumatized state because it's it's amazing some of the stuff they put in it and, and like how poisonous poisonous it is to your body but your brain ultimately so i i thought about that yesterday i was going to call in but i ended up falling asleep and i was like i gotta run that past gus and see what he thinks about it it's important it is important what you and drinking more water too, like you were saying with the chemicals, because so many of us used to be myself too, just had a gulp of water as you just were finishing your sentence. So many of us, those chemicals, I mean, that's part of eating uh, sodas and beverages that have all those chemicals and dyes. Uh, and we have had folks on the, uh, I mentioned Dr. Layla Africa. He was one of the folks who was with, the, with us 
uh, on one of those Super Bowl Sundays. He's written about that extensively. A lot of his research, Nutricide is second worst book I've ever read, but that notwithstanding, talks a lot about that. A lot of those chemicals, that that is a huge component of white supremacy, racism to get black people and non-white people all over the world. Some of our listeners, investors in China talked about how KFC has made such huge inroads in China. And you got all these obese people, non-white people uh, in China who've been McDonald's. KFC whole generation of that and and how it's damaged their not just their bodies and physical health but their minds as well so totally agree um yes that is a worthwhile effort for myself and others uh both in terms of writing uh and sharing other information modeling hopefully uh so I try and talk about healthy adjusted had my water my vegan pizza today no cheese all veggies artichokes olives tomatoes Fresh garlic, almond, pesto. It's amazing. But yeah, super important what you eat. Fresh, as much fresh fruits and vegetables as you can. And in fact, uh, going fresh, that helps you minimize some of that plastic. Talking about all the toxins that we eat, the more you eat out. We just read that in Countdown, the book, Shauna Swan. I'm going to see if we can get her on the program, white author. Uh, But she talked about all that eating out when you go to McDonald's and takeout and all the rest of it, all that stuff. You're getting plastic. The more that eating out, the more plastic you end up with in your system. So try to eat home, do more cooking. Hopefully you'll be eating on glass plates and what have you. So you're not having all that plastic and rubbish getting in your system. What you eat is huge. Do we miss anybody? Anybody with a hand up that we didn't hear from at all? Everybody good? Didn't miss anybody? We'll assume folks are satisfied for the evening. Uh, Much obliged for everyone who participated, tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. So we should be here uh, Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Kyla Schuller, white woman. We'll talk about her book that was like really recently published. I'm not sure if it was this year, but I mean, it's recent. Uh, It might have been late last year, but the trouble with white women trouble. They are 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific Monday evening. So if you survive the Super Bowl, yes, Monday and no craziness uh, in the workplace for the 14th, like. Uh, yeah, let's, we're supposed to be striving for universal man, universal woman. So no chocolates, no flowers and all that nonsense, uh, in the workplace on Monday It's just February 14. Let's get him go to work. Got the Rona and other things to battle. That's it. Much obliged for everybody uh, joining us, uh, for the compensatory call. Hope it was constructive. Uh, sobriety would be best uh, if you are doing the ball game festivities for the weekend I know we got listeners in Southern California and Ohio as well Uh, if you gotta participate engage in the madness man make sure it is done safely Uh, I would say I would probably not want to go like out to a bar or something like that for a lot of reasons but especially if it's going to be like drunk white people like what I say worst combination in the known universe one of them is white friend the other whites alcohol it's like 1a 1b in terms of worst combinations you pick which is which uh but yeah i would not be doing that even i wouldn't want to be around a lot of intoxicated victims 
because it can just be unsafe, uh, especially like I said with the game. People, you know, sometimes they wager and get upset about who's going to win and all the rest of it. Uh, if you got to do all that, be codified and stay in one spot so you don't have to deal with any uh, stops by enforcement officials, badge or no. Uh, if you're out and about and you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled, you are not on the cell phone, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention just because these are dangerous times on the plantation. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>